the way this mechanism has been set up in india has sort of relied on uh, what are called command and control instruments right so so basically there is a standard you are meant to be under that standard somebody comes and measures this from time to time if you are above that standard it is a criminal offense and therefore there is going to be like a a lawsuit filed against you you could land up in jail and sort of pay a, a fine of some kind in practice the the legal system in india is sort of backed up uh, most cases take years and years and years the the actual compliance against these standards is quite poor the pollution control boards are understaffed there is no real mechanism by which they can go after these many industries that are flouting the law as a result for the most part the the regulatory regime just sort of fails so if uh, a particular industry is found to be non compliant there is sort of a gentle slap on the wrist there is some kind of polite correspondence where the regulator writes to the industry and sort of asks them to sort of explain themselves and and sort of ends with that there is very little action taken hey listeners rob wilson here head of research at 80000 hours air pollution kills and harms people far more than we typically appreciate in rich and poor countries alike it probably kills 10 times as many people as malaria Tuberculosis is the single communicable disease that kills the most people each year, and air pollution maybe kills four times as many people as that. And of course, much of the harm isn't just about dying; it's about feeling like rubbish, uh, brain fog, and stunted human potential uh, while we are all still alive. So, I was really excited to get to talk to Santosh Harish of Open Philanthropy, who's taken on the challenge of using philanthropy to reduce the harm being done by air pollution in India—something that almost nobody else in the world is even attempting to do. We talk about how bad air pollution is for our health and life expectancy, the different kinds of harm that particulate pollution causes, and how strong the evidence is that it's damaging our brain function. Whether it was a mistake to switch our attention so much away from air pollution and towards climate change, whether most listeners to this show should, like me, have an air purifier running in their house right now, where air pollution in India is worst, and why that is, and whether it's trending upwards or downwards, where most air pollution is coming from. the policy blunders that led to many sources of air pollution in india effectively just being completely unregulated why indoor air pollution packs a massive punch the politics of air pollution in india how india ended up spending a lot of money on outdoor air purifiers the challenges faced by foreign philanthropists in india uh, why santosh has made the grants that he has so far and plenty more without further ado i bring you santosh harish Today I'm speaking with Santosh Harish. Santosh leads open philanthropy's grant making in South Asian air quality, which he's been doing from his office in India since the start of 2022. Prior to that, he was a fellow at the Center for Policy Research in New Delhi, uh, working with the Initiative for Climate, Energy, and Environment. And before that, he worked as the Associate Director for Research at the India Center of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago, uh, and did postdoctoral fellowships with JPAL South Asia uh, and Evidence for Policy Design. Back in his relative youth, he studied a bachelor in technology. at the Indian Institute of Technology Madras before doing a PhD in engineering and public policy at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Thanks for coming on the podcast Santosh. Hi Rob, uh thanks for having me here. Uh it's a pleasure. I hope to talk about where the most air pollution comes from as well as the cheapest ways to reduce it. But first, uh give it to us straight. How uh, how bad is particulate air pollution? Well, air pollution is the single largest environmental and occupational risk factor to public health. globally 
per the global burden of disease estimates, uh, it accounts for something like 6.67 million deaths a year. Uh, this was as of 2019, which to give context is about 12% of all deaths globally, right? Not all of this is particulate matter. Particulate matter is um, the vast majority of this. Uh, a small fraction of this is is what's called ground level ozone. But yeah, uh, it's, it's it's pretty bad. So, so so when I started working on air pollution, which is about roughly a decade back, right? Some some of these number high numbers were sort of hard to sort of um, come to terms with, right? It, it it almost seems implausibly large uh, intuitively because you're like okay well it's it's bad I mean it's 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 presumably bad for your lungs or something but uh, could it really be this bad? So the the thing about air pollution which makes it so harmful and in particular particulate matter air pollution is that particulate matter is not a single substance right it's 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 a cocktail of various things that are in the air. Um, they just happen to be uh, finer than 2.5 microns in diameter, which is a tiny fraction of um, how thick your hair is. And it, it is composed of a variety of chemical substances, some of which uh, are relatively harmless, some of which are extremely toxic. So it, it could be stuff like soil dust, which is sort of naturally occurring, or, or, or sea salt, which are likely to be you know, not particularly harmful. And then there is stuff like lead and other heavy metals that are that are suspended in uh, in the air uh, there are uh, inorganic compounds like sulfates and nitrates which sort of originate from vehicular emissions from coal power plant uh, emissions and so on so it's it's a variety of different things because these particles are as fine as they are they are able to enter the enter the lungs enter the the systemic circulation and then basically these various things that that, that have no business being in our body can sort of travel to different organs and cause a variety of different harms. Yeah. So I guess, you know, we'd all have the intuition that smog is not going to be great for your health. But I suppose the thing that would be possible to intuitively miss is that there's a whole lot of different chemicals, different kinds of tiny, tiny particles that end up suspended in, in the air. I guess we, we talk about PM 2.5. We're going to talk about that a lot. And that's particles that are smaller than 2.5 microns. That is to say, well, I guess I'm not sure how to make it intuitive, but they're, but they're small enough that they can cross over into the lungs and into the bloodstream and then out of the bloodstream into other organs in the body. So they can end up in your brain, end up in your liver, end up uh, in your intestines or wherever, basically. I guess they can end up in children developing uh, inside, a, inside a pregnant woman. And so they can do damage to many different parts of your health uh, all, all at once. And I guess m- my impression is that people in recent decades have come to think that air pollution is worse than they used to believe, that um, there's been more research kind of pinning down what effect does air pollution have on many different health issues. And this has caused people to realize that the issue, like it's far more systematic, the impacts uh, than what we'd realized. Is, is that right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's objectively the case that you know, with each passing year, sometimes it feels like with each passing month or even week, perhaps, there is sort of new literature out there that seems to suggest that air pollution is somehow more harmful on a particular health outcome than we had previously thought, or it actually seems to affect something else that we hadn't even considered earlier, right? For instance, there is a growing literature now on on how air pollution affects cognition, Right. Um, and, and thereby affects productivity, affects a bunch of academic outcomes. Um, and, and this is relatively new literature. This isn't the basis by which 
you know, like the global burden of disease, for example, things of the, 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 the harms of air pollution. So these are new things, uh, new impacts of air pollution. And, and yeah, I, I think the literature has been growing and, and been growing at a fairly rapid click, uh, which is quite alarming. What is perhaps the most outrageous or emotionally grabbing example of, of air pollution to you? So something I, The thing that I have in mind is something that barely benefits the person who's emitting all of this pollution, but it's causing massive health damage to people, uh, to people in the nearby area. One thing that comes to mind is um, sort of municipal waste burning that happens in, you know, sort of many cities in the, the global south. So basically, this is waste that gets collected from people's homes. And, and instead of sort of being transported to a, a waste management facility or a landfill or something, basically gets burnt at some point because that's like the fastest way to uh, to dispose of it, um, which really sort of points to a poor delivery of public services, right? But this is like ubiquitous in, you know, virtually every small or even like medium-sized city. Um, it, it happens in larger cities too in this part of the world. So I think that's something that sort of truly annoys me because it, it feels like the kind of thing that ought to be you know, fairly easily managed, but it happens a lot. It happens because people presumably don't think that it's particularly harmful. I don't think it saves a ton of money uh, for the for the municipal corporations and other local government that that are meant to sort of manage it. So, so that's that's one example that comes to mind. It, I find it particularly annoying simply because it's, uh, it, it happens so often. It's something that you know, you're, you're able to smell in, in so many different uh, parts of these cities. Mm. Another which uh, seems sort of downright evil to me is um, a whole bunch of industries that tend to not use the pollution control equipment that they have in their facilities already, right? And and just basically like dump the the, the flue gas, as it's called, the the gas that gets uh, emitted from the the various processes in the in the industry you know, without the, the emission controls in the middle of the night uh, when it's it's not obvious. I mean, it, it can't be detected as easily as it would in the day. And this is basically to, again, like save what I suspect is change, right? In, in terms of like maintenance and operation costs of this equipment. You have the equipment and, and there are these standards. And yeah, so that's, I think, downright evil on, on sort of the part of these industries. Yeah, over the last couple of years, I've started getting more and more emotionally incensed by air pollution. I guess so. So I studied economics, and I read a lot of economists on Twitter and on blogs, and uh, I guess I listen to lots of podcasts that, that have economists on them. And it feels like over the last five years, economists have just been losing their shit more and more about air pollution, just getting more and more frustrated with how much damage seems to be getting done by this, and maybe how surprisingly unseriously it's taken in public policy and 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 just in general, maybe even by by voters in some ways. And this has caused me to start, you know, every so often, I live in London, every so often I see a car go down the street that's obviously not in good nick, uh, not in good condition, and it's um, spewing fumes out the back. And I just get like, ah, these people are like assaulting me as a pedestrian. It's it's so outrageous what's happening. Like, why doesn't why don't the police do something? Why doesn't something happen? I don't think this happens so much anymore. But when I first moved to the UK, there were lots of boats along the Thames that were just had, had I think, wood fires or just fuel fires inside the boats. Huh. And uh, there were also houses that still had wood fires. I mean, this is obviously a very densely populated area in London. It's crazy that they're just burning fuel producing this really seriously toxic fumes that are affecting everyone around. Uh, anyway, that's that's my rant about <laughs> pollution and my intuitive reaction to it now. I, I imagine you probably have worse stories from, from your own experience. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, don't get me started on like the, the smoke spewing vehicles on the roads. 
again, right? I mean, that it's, it's one of those cases where that almost certainly is a symptom of like a highly inefficient vehicle that's sort of still plying on the road and a, a newer vehicle would likely save a ton of fuel and, and, and also cause much less harm. It seems to be the kind of thing where it's in everybody's interest that this vehicle does not exist on the, the roads. Um I'm actually optimistic about this. I, I do think that the number of these vehicles tends to sort of reduce quite quickly and, and, and that these incentives not to be running them um, ultimately sort of dawns on, on, on whoever owns these vehicles. Yeah. Okay, let, let's just uh, clarify something quickly. You're working on South Asia air quality. And I guess South Asia includes what uh, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, maybe Nepal, Bhutan. Um, but you're mostly focused on India, I guess, because that's where you spend a lot of time and that's where you know the most. That's right. I, I am based out of India. I have I've primarily worked on air pollution in India. Uh, so as a grant maker as well, um, sort of, this is my relative comfort zone. It's also the case that air pollution work in India is sort of ahead of uh, the countries in the neighborhood. Um, so they just a significantly larger number of organizations working on it. Uh, the scientific understanding of air pollution is is sort of more advanced. So yeah, so there are obviously more grant-making opportunities here as well. Uh, but yeah, by, by, by South Asia, uh, we are primarily funding work in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Nepal. Uh, these four countries are, you know, tend to also feature in sort of the top 10 uh, when it comes to sort of the the highest population weighted annual sort of uh, concentrations of PM2.5 or, you know, sort of the health impacts of it and, and so on. So this is arguably one of the, the most polluted parts of the world. Yeah. And, and in terms of different pollution types, so, so there's obviously there's particulate matter. And so that's the majority of the, the harm that's been caused is that. I guess there's also ozone. Are there other things that people should have have in mind? Uh, well, there are there are others like carbon monoxide, for example, which is also an incredibly harmful pollutant. But ground level ozone and and PM two point five really dominate both in terms of um, you know just just how harmful they are, but also how widely prevalent they are at levels that are that are harmful. Yeah, what are the actual particles? I'd kind of assumed maybe on some level that they were ash or that they were, that you know they're like this kind of thing that you'd get if you burned wood and it was going up. So that's got to be part of it. But are, are there other things as well? So that's definitely part of it. So there's like, I guess, the the finer version of the ash that you see when you when you burn something, right? But but the other constituents of it are things like um, you know inorganic compounds like sulfates and nitrates. So sulfur dioxide is one of uh, is is principally uh, emitted by the combustion of coal in power plants in industries which sort of uh, burn coal for a variety of different reasons nitrogen oxides are primarily emitted by vehicles uh, burning you know diesel or or or, or petrol and uh, these then sort of react with other uh, gases that are in the atmosphere to form sulfates and nitrates uh, which are particulate matter mm. the other constituents of it are i mean there are, there are a bunch of uh, what are called organic compounds um, which again get emitted from a variety of different sources there are trace heavy metals which are which are particularly harmful so, so this could be lead for example being emitted from for example the the improper uh, smelting or disposal of lead acid batteries and and, and so on uh, so so yeah so it's 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 a it's a wide variety of of different things which just happen to be finer than 2.5 microns and i mean just to sort of i think help get a sense of this a micron or a, or, or a micrometer is a millionth of a centimeter hmm. and therefore like something like a tenth of the thickness of your hair, uh, if, if that helps. 
So let's let's when we come back and analyze a little bit more carefully how large is the scale of the damage being done by by air pollution because well I guess on this show uh, we, we don't just settle for something's really bad we want to kind of quantify it a little bit a little bit more uh, more specifically yeah is it yeah so so we've, so far we've talked about the issue that it causes people to die so it causes a whole bunch of mortality yeah what are the different ways in which it causes people to die or suffer like directly ill health. So the evidence is strongest when it comes to a bunch of heart and lung diseases, right? So uh, some of the, the the principal sources of death and illness that can be attributable to air pollution seem to be heart disease, lung cancer, uh, something called chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, uh, which is basically like a chronic lung infection, which, you know, mm. once you have it, it, it doesn't go away. It cannot be reversed, right? There are lower respiratory infections like pneumonia, strokes, uh, uh, type 2 diabetes. So yeah, I think those are some of the the big health harms. So the global burden of disease, I, I'm sure your listeners are, um, are, are familiar with it, but uh, but just in case, this is an effort that's sort of uh, anchored by, by the IHME, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. I think that's right. Um, that's it, yeah. So, so basically these are sort of periodic, uh, massive uh, scientific uh, enterprises that, that basically bring together sort of the who's who of public health researchers to try and synthesize evidence on, on, on a bunch of different risk factors. So that's that's what they do for air pollution as well. It tends to be a relatively sort of conservative effort in that they do try and restrict to the the sources of illness and death where the evidence is relatively stronger. Um, mm. Although they are, are, are pretty transparent that there are significant uncertainties involved in these estimates. Right? So till 2017, right? So which is like two iterations back, the air pollution harms were, were basically restricted to just five diseases. And the, the ones that I mentioned earlier, uh, heart disease, lung cancer, COPD, lower respiratory infections and strokes. They have since added type 2 diabetes. And, and one of the more, um, I, I guess, like an emotional one, uh, which, which tend which tends to get a lot of uh, attention when, when these reports get released, is they also included impacts on neonatal deaths in GBD 2019, right? Um, so this is basically infants that die within the first, uh, I think, 27 days uh, after their birth because of the exposure of the fetus within the womb to, to air pollution. And uh, they estimated something like half a million uh, neonatal deaths per year uh, that might be attributable to air pollution, which, you know, again, is, is like a striking number. So so basically, these are infants that, you know, are, are likely born preterm or possibly with lower uh, birth weight than, than ideal. And as a result, are sort of more vulnerable and and and, and therefore there's a higher chance of, of death within the first month. But yeah, which again, I think is a, is a striking and if true, uh, alarming number. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that air pollution is kind of a major cause or the major cause of around 12% of deaths globally, which is a large fraction of, 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 of all. It's, yeah. it's a very, very large number. Is it possible to maybe maybe to try to make it a bit more intuitive? Could, could we talk about how much light, let's say that the air in London uh, went to being perfect, like how much longer, how much more life expectancy would people in London get? And then if, say, the air pollution in Delhi disappeared completely and they had perfect air, like how many more years of life or years of healthy life might someone expect to, to enjoy in Delhi? Yeah, so at the moment, so like going back to the GBD numbers, right? In the UK more generally, and not just London, the sort of the death rates attributable due to air pollution is something of the order of 11 per 100,000 
so so 11 deaths per 100000 that can be attributable to uh, mm. and in india um, that number is a factor of 10 higher right so so uh, something like 98 per 100000 is that per 100,000 people per year? Per 100,000 people. Uh, 100, not 100,000 deaths, 100,000 people. Got it, yeah. And, and the difference between the, the levels of air pollution is maybe like eightfold on, on, on average, uh, maybe slightly less than eightfold. So some, somewhere between seven to eight X. It does not scale linearly, hmm. right? So one of the things that we have learned in the last few years is that air pollution seems to be harmful at levels that were previously thought to be safe. Uh, so much so that the WHO sort of reduced its guidelines for what classifies as clean air from 10 microgram per meter cube of PM2.5 to something like 5, which is much lower than regulatory standards in, in any part of the world at the moment. And, and that's a reflection of research showing that air pollution could actually still be quite harmful um, at those low levels. The shape of what's called the, the, the dose response curve, so basically your, the dose of your pollution exposure uh, and, and therefore the, the response in terms of your health impacts, uh, seems to be curvilinear. So, so basically at lower levels of pollution, uh, a marginal increase leads to a higher increase in relative risks hmm. than at higher levels of air pollution. So basically the relative risks sort of flatten out as, huh. as the pollution increases. So, so beyond a point... If if I could swear, I mean, you're, you're basically screwed. Uh, okay. it, it doesn't matter if, um, you know, you're, yeah. So, so that seems to be the shape of the relative risks. But there are multiple sources of non-linearity here when, when we think about uh, how the air pollution uh, risks manifest, right? So mm. in low-income countries, low- and medium-income uh, income countries, because there are other sort of sources of, uh, public health risk, malnutrition, uh, other sort of pollutants, lower incomes, and therefore uh, lesser ability to sort of uh, access healthcare, uh, things like that, they sort of multiply with each other. I see. And therefore, um, it sort of becomes more half. So I, I don't know if I gave a straight answer to your question. Um, <laughs> well, I think well, it, when I was doing background uh, research for this, I, I saw some map that was attempting to, to quantify this. We'll, we'll, we'll stick up a link to it. I can't ex- I remember exactly which, which source it was. But I think it was suggesting that in, in the UK, in cities, people were losing one to two years of life maybe uh, from air pollution in total. Whereas in India, at least in the like more, more built up areas in the, in the north where the air pollution is worse, I think it was estimating six, seven, eight years maybe. I'm not sure. Whether, does, it, does that seem plausible, or do you think I've misunderstood? Uh, no. So, so I think you're, you're referring to the the air quality life index uh, report uh, that the, the University of Chicago takes out. Yeah, it is possible that these numbers are overestimates. So, at least compared to like the global burden of disease style synthesis of health impacts, this certainly seems to be on the, on the relatively higher side. Uh, an alternative estimate, uh, for example from the sort of the GBD stable is that uh, Indians might be losing something like three years of, of their life expectancy due to air pollution on, on, on average. And obviously that number is higher in, in North India, but that's almost half of what the, the AQLI uh, report um, tends to estimate. Okay. 
Yeah, well, the, I mean, these things are hard to estimate. So actually, like, only having a twofold range <laughs> between these different sources. Yeah, yeah exactly. There, there, are, there are massive uncertainties still. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so three to six, maybe, uh, in in India, uh, could be could could be a plausible yeah. range. And then in the UK, you would expect that maybe it's a fifth or something like that. L- looking at that map, there, there were relatively few places that people live where the air was really clean <laughs> by, by the standard. I guess you know, in uh, in Norway, <laughs> there were some places yeah. that was really good. And you know, and, and if you're far away from population centers, then you'll be okay. But it really, it, it seemed like the great majority of people are breathing air that is certain that the WHO at least would say is pretty is is not healthy. That's right. Um, I mean, especially I think when you compare it against the 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 updated guidelines of the WHO, it it basically means that I don't know, like ninety nine percent of the world's population uh, breathes air that is insufficiently clean. Yeah, if you, if you want to breathe clear, clean air, you have to move to the fjords of Norway. Um, okay, so so that's the classic kind of life expectancy uh, issue. But there's this whole other cluster that's been get, becoming more and more prominent, which is these effects on cognitive performance and mood and, and things like that. So yeah, I, I've read that there's a bunch of studies suggesting, as, as you were saying earlier, that it harms school performance. So to, to, to have polluted air makes you do worse at school, makes you do worse at your work, makes you causes you to drive worse, uh, make make more mistakes, potentially also affects mental health, like makes people more likely to have, have depression or commit, commit suicide and things like that. Is there any way of kind of summing up the evidence on that? Because at the moment, there's just so many different papers looking at, you know, sp- specific different uh, outcome measures. It's a little bit hard maybe to aggregate it into a, into a simple picture for me. Yeah, I mean, I can give you my take, uh, which is possibly sort of more skeptical than, than others, which is given that there is something like that there is a body of work that's emerging that seems to be pointing in a in a similar direction. There, there seems to be evidence to suggest that air pollution harms you uh, and, and your productivity in a manner that is distinct from its harms on, on health, right? So so mm. it's, it's not productivity that is uh, getting harmed because you're falling sick more often, but productivity that is being harmed because of cognitive losses. So the magnitude of these impacts, I don't claim to be an expert on this stuff. And I, 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 in some sense, I'm a consumer of, of these results. And so the, the magnitude of these impacts, I suspect will still have significant uncertainties and, and, and sort of publication biases and, and, and things like that. In some sense, the reason I'm sort of more comfortable with the global burden of disease type estimates is that it reflects a larger body of work. And although the the causal identification with some of these public health papers may not always be up to scratch, they're they're relatively transparent about what they they do and don't. Um, and and they just they're just more papers from from different parts of the world at different levels of pollution, uh, mm. which once again which, which seem to sort of back each other up. And I, I think on the on the cognitive and productivity stuff, there is it's still like a, a a more nascent body of work, which which is still pointing in the same general direction. But I just don't know if there has been enough of it. Yeah. So so probably harmful to your cognition in a manner different. It's sort of in in addition to like the the impacts on your on your health on on heart disease and lungs and so forth. My own sense is that we don't yet know uh, the the magnitude to the level of certainty that that we would like. So, for example, in 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 our grant making, this isn't something that we actually factor in, in into our, like our cost effectiveness uh, calculations. So far, it's been restricted to health impacts alone uh, of prolonged exposure. Yeah, and um, yeah, I, I imagine that will be the case in the foreseeable future. Yeah, that, that's really great because you're, you're preempting where I was about to go next, which is kind of probing how confident can we be about these different papers suggesting that um, air pollution is having these different effects. I mean. 
Yeah, listeners to the show will be familiar with the general idea that it's not uncommon for academic literatures to produce really striking, amazing results that then over time you end up with more qualifications and you get conflicting results and then you're, and you're not as sure as you initially were. Uh, and then when you do higher quality studies, sometimes the effects can disappear completely. And so I, I slightly worry that this could happen with some of these more cutting edge or speculative impacts that air pollution might be having. That, that said, there is almost certainly something going on here because it. Uh, one thing that's very nice about air pollution is that it's possible to get these quasi-random uh, studies, basically, because the weather affects the, the weather is this external exogenous source of random variation yeah. that causes some days there to be much more pollution than others. So, in as much as you're studying the direct immediate effect of air pollution on someone, rather than its kind of cumulative effect over a lifetime of exposure. I know that there are these papers that economists have done where they'll look at people at, at a school, for example, that is, say, to the west of a road that produces a lot of air pollution because it's a highway. And they can compare days when the wind is blowing west. And so the school is getting exposed to lots of air pollution from this highway to uh, days when the wind is blowing east, uh, when uh, the air is a lot cleaner because the air, because uh, the pollution isn't being blown over from the road. And they can see uh, from test results, from standardized tests and so on, that the, that the students do worse. They do materially worse on standardized tests on days when the, where the air pollution is higher. I mean, of course, things could go wrong and that you, your result could end up being wrong, but that's like relatively a credible kind of um, research design. Do you want to comment on that? So a couple of my priors, right? So one, it's almost certainly the case that most of the, the, the health harms due to air pollution is because of prolonged exposure as opposed to short-term exposure, even to like extraordinarily high levels. Um, so, so that's probably true. Um, and therefore, like the short-term uh, exposure and, and the, the studies that sort of estimate its impact on on health or, or, or cognition, um, it's likely to be a relatively small fraction of the of the larger pie. It is true that uh, there are these sort of uh, quasi-random uh, uh, variations in, in, in pollution levels that allow you to study the impacts of the, the short-term changes. Uh, one of my colleagues at OpenPhil, who's with the cost prioritization team, um, who I think has thought about this stuff more carefully than me, uh, Lauren Gilbert, is extremely skeptical of weather as an, uh, an, an instrumental variable and um, uh, believes that, that sort of the, the current understanding in the, the, the econ literature on causal identification have, has basically sort of set aside weather as like a, a reliable source of um, exogenous variation. and uh, so, so just just to clarify what you're saying, so instrumental variables is this method where you use something like the wind as this source of uh, random exogenous variation that's not associated with other things, in, right. uh, hopefully, uh, and then see whether that affects test results. And then you hope that the only way that the weather could affect test results would be via it bringing pollution uh, to, the, to, the, to the classroom. Uh, are you saying that your, your colleague is skeptical that this is, a, that this is actually a sound research design and that economists have become more skeptical of it? That's right. And, and as a result, uh, some of these papers that, um, that, that are sort of using weather as the principal IV, uh, instrumental variable, may not eventually sort of stand up sort of scrutiny. And therefore, um, might either have errors that are larger than um, than, than sort of is uh, estimated in the paper. It, it comes either the, the the estimated impacts become sort of more muted, or they're just unable to make a claim once you sort of correct for some of these measurement errors, right? So, so again, um, that's the kind of stuff that sort of makes me a little skeptical of sort of the the emergent literature. So once again, 
the, the same cautionary warning uh, that I mentioned earlier, I do not claim to be an expert in causal identification methods and the strengths and limitations of uh, IVs. And um, yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm just a consumer of this work. And yeah. it's like, well... But you think we should take it with a pinch of salt? Air pollution seems to be like a harmful yeah. thing. What can we do about it? Is, is sort of where my, my realm of uh, experience begins. Okay, great. Yeah, I think we'll stick up some links to people who are analyzing this kind of question, trying to figure out, you know, how much can we, how much can we trust uh, these these new seeming uh, research results on on air pollution for people who want to look into that more. And uh, yeah, we'll have to get someone who's working on that research in particular mm-hmm. to, to dig into it in, in more detail at, at some future time because I find it super fascinating. One thing I, you mentioned earlier that you had kind of declining marginal harm with air pollution. That is to say that the most damage is done by the first bits of air pollution that you're exposed to. Uh, and then at some point you're just screwed and, and, and further, like having a little bit more or a little bit less doesn't make that much difference. That, that's a bit counterintuitive to me because I would think mm-hmm. like often you have this kind of model that the body can handle some level of abuse, but then beyond some point, it's no longer able to kind of repair the damage that's being done. And if that were the way that things are working, then you'd expect to have increasing incremental harm from each extra bit of air pollution because the body would be overwhelmed. But uh, I guess, are we reasonably confident that actually it goes the other way, that it's it's the first units that, that are the worst? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, so, so, so to clarify, um, even at high levels of air pollution, there is likely to be some incremental harm. Uh, it's just that it's it's at a, the, the slope of the graph is sort of uh, much... Levels off. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's, it's, it's steeper at uh, the, the initial levels. It is counterintuitive. Uh, it also means a few things, right? One is that for places like Delhi, which have uh, sort of abominable levels of uh, uh, air pollution throughout the year, for policy to be able to bring it down to levels where the, the health harms, you know, are brought, you know, as close to zero, they don't need to just improve by a little bit, but they need to improve by a lot. Right. Because sort of most of those gains are actually, you know, at, at a level that's maybe like a third or a fourth um, of the levels that you see right now. So that that sort of makes the, the challenge in many ways sort of steeper. It also uh, leads to this potentially interesting conundrum on where you want to sort of prioritize your efforts. So, it's, for example, there's this, uh, there, there's this paper called uh, which, which basically poses the question on whether you ought to be making blue skies bluer, uh, which is that do you actually then focus on cities that are closer to, you know, that, that inflection point? Yeah. And and basically look to make them uh, significantly cleaner and, and, and more livable. It, it seems like a very EA type sort of dilemma to ponder over. <laughs> right, yes. Yeah, I like it because it's, well, it's, so the idea there is that if it's the first uh, bit of air pollution that does most of the damage, then what you want to do is find places that are kind, like reasonably clean, not that bad, and then get them to be really clean. <laughs> um, and that is a bit, little bit counterintuitive uh, as the most cost-effective thing to do, because usually the most cost-effective thing to do is to focus on the people who are suffering the worst of something rather than people who have the least of it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean... Um, for better or for worse, right? Uh, it, it, it is a fact, though, that eventually uh, the way policy seems to um, prioritize where resources are, are are to be spent ends up being places like Delhi, where you know, sort of, the, the levels of pollution are just so high that they're they're obvious. It sort of becomes more politically salient, and uh, mm. you know, it gets a bunch of uh, media attention. So I, I don't know if that this if if this is actually something that. Um, is actually a dilemma that sort of faces policymakers. Um, it possibly ought to be, uh, but but yeah, uh, for better or for worse, I don't think it's 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 actually like a a serious question um, that that government folks uh, tend to sort of uh, tackle. 
Yeah. I'm planning to interview someone from the lead exposure uh, elimination project later in the year. So, so lead, is, lead is on my mind. Do, do you know if air pollution in India or elsewhere ends up inadvertently exposing people to lead, which, which we know is just extremely bad for people's health and, and, and cognitive development? It's really one of the worst poisons that uh, we've ever you know, systematically been exposing people to. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the mechanisms by which uh, we get exposed to lead is, you know, through air. We're also exposed to it, uh, you know, through food, through spices and, you know, all that. A couple of points. Uh, One, trace levels of of lead would would technically be part of, you know, PM 2.5. Although because lead is as harmful as it is, uh, regulators tend to like measure that separately anyway and have separate standards for it uh, anyway. There are some common sources uh, of, of both sort of lead pollution and, you know, sort of particulate matter. For instance, uh, improper recycling of lead acid batteries tends to make both worse due to sort of different dynamics. Um, so, so there are uh, relationships between the two. I'm, I'm unaware of any other literature that seems to suggest that air pollution makes the impacts of lead worse. You know, when I was growing up in Australia, there was leaded petrol. So I think cars when I was a kid were spewing out presumably lead, right, among other among other things. And I was just breathing it in. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess lead petrol is not, not in India and not in most places these days, but it might still be in the fumes of industrial uses possibly, right? That's right. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the, the reason I didn't mention that is that uh, fortunately, it seems to be something that's largely behind us. But yes, uh, it's it's possible that that's still a factor from um, industries. Yeah. Are there any surprising things that people should know about air pollution or kind of misconceptions that people often have that, that, that are worth clearing up? Yeah. So uh, I, I think one that um, is, is actually a, a significant sort of um, a hindrance to uh, effective policy in, in India and uh, similar countries is that Air pollution is assumed to be an urban problem. This was certainly true in, you know, sort of big uh, industrial cities and so on, where sort of air pollution started becoming sort of uh, visible and salient. Um, So think of London or Pittsburgh, Los Angeles. Uh, So... In, in in places like India, though, that's that's just not true because uh, rural air pollution can be significant. In fact, it's it's on average, uh, rural exposure is not very different from urban exposure. One of the largest sources of air pollution exposure in in, in India, in in Pakistan, a uh, whole bunch of other countries would actually be the household burning of solid fuels, uh, wood and uh, dung cakes and you know things like that, and. Um, yeah, uh, so so it's it's actually not at all um, an an urban issue alone, and mm. historically it has been treated as as that. Uh, so, for example, there are no rural air quality monitors in India, and <laughs> okay. uh, it's sort of a chicken and egg thing, right? So, uh, till recently, the question, the the response to why there aren't quest- there aren't monitors there was that look, it's we know villages are clean. Uh, that's where you go when you know you have respiratory problems and so on, right? Uh, and so, so yeah, uh, it, it neither gets sort of measured because uh, it's, it's assumed to be uh, not a problem and because there isn't any measurement to suggest otherwise that never really gets updated. So yeah, so mm. uh, because there are alternative sources of data now, um, satellite data-based estimates of air pollution, for example, I think there is growing uh, evidence that rural air pollution can be substantial uh, and therefore there has been a growing demand for uh, air quality monitoring in, in rural areas. Another sort of misconception that in some ways we touched upon, right, is is that there are sort of safe levels of, of, of air pollution. 
that that um, it's it's only like the truly apocalyptic levels um, that that one sees, for example, in winters in in, in places like Delhi and so on. Um, only that's what harms you. Um, that unfortunately just doesn't seem to be true. Uh, impacts have been detected at much lower levels uh, that were previously considered safe. An unusual type of misconception uh, that's sometimes popular uh, in sort of government circles is that air pollution is something that you can build immunity to. Um, oh, wow. I've never heard that one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's, yeah. it's, it's something that, uh, yeah, uh, as ridiculous as that sounds, right? I mean... Well, I guess it's like uh, if you go out in the sun a lot, maybe you get a tan, which slightly helps you to not get sunburned. But uh, I don't imagine you can, your body can do that with particulate pollution. Yeah, and I mean, the idea is that, you know, like like everything else. So um, there's sort of this uh, uh, insistence by, I, I certainly don't think all regulators, but by some that uh, Indian lungs, for example, are just better able to handle air pollution than, okay. uh, than for example, American lungs, right? Because we've been exposed to it. Um, You're used to it, okay. Over a period of time, so we've got used to it. So we don't routinely fall sick uh, when the levels of air pollution are high. And uh, when somebody's visiting Delhi or something, they you feel it. Mm. You, you, you feel mm. the difference quite viscerally. And um, so that clearly points to like Indian lungs being better adapted. I mean, that's, that's, of course, nonsense. And but yeah, it's it's unfortunately like a persistent myth that is, has sort of been hard to shake off. One of the implications of that also has been a general skepticism towards like the public health impact estimates um, from sources like the GBD uh, here. So, so there's sort of an insistence that we need more indigenous uh, research sort of studying health impacts you know, in Indian populations and that uh, these extrapolations from, from, from other parts of the world um, are, are just not reliable. I mean, there is, there is a truth to it, right? I mean, it is an understudied topic. There just isn't enough high quality cohort studies and so on uh, in, the, in the public health literature on air pollution at sort of elevated levels of concentrations. There is some that's sort of emerging from China, but those are still levels that are lower than, than, than what one sees in North India. So, so the, there is some truth to uh, there being like a significant research gap. I am, however, uh, not as uh, persuaded that that then means that the the sort of the the, the absence of evidence is evidence of absence. I, I think I'm yeah seeing that right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, pe- people do differ around the world, but I think one fortunate thing about humanity is that from a biological, medical, yeah. <laughs> like uh, you know, basic uh, physical requirement point of view, human, humans everywhere. Are more similar than they are different, and uh, I guess if yeah. if we were finding that air pollution was doing people a lot of damage in America, I would tend to assume by default that that could also be true in India, rather than uh, saying, "Well, we just who can say <laughs> we need to prove it here as well." But uh, I don't know. Yeah, I think those are my favorite misconceptions. There might be others, but yeah, uh, the 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 immunity thing I think is is uh, is a particularly fun one. Yeah. <laughs> An argument that I, that, that I came across when uh, doing, doing background research for this was the observation that, you know, in recent decades, the, the main environmental campaign or the most prominent environmental campaign, at, le- at least in rich countries or at least in English speaking countries that I'm familiar with, I think by a decent margin has been climate change, preventing climate change. And it's kind of famously hard to get people and countries to do stuff about climate change because if you emit carbon, the damage that that does is spread globally. It's spread everywhere, not just in your country. And it's not just this year. It's mm-hmm. spread over decades or centuries. And people have been pointing out, given that air pollution seems to do so much harm to people's health, you know, e- even, in, even in the US or the UK, it's still really quite substantial impacts on people's health relative to the things that we tolerate elsewhere. It's 
funny that we've focused on trying to get people to do this thing that's a that's a really hard sell because of its public good kind of global public good uh, nature when we could have instead perhaps been focusing on particulate pollution, which is kind of the reverse in that you benefit very immediately because the air cleans itself up, but particulate pollution fall, falls out and you could be healthier really quickly if you closed up a coal plant nearby you. Mm-hmm. And and it's like also, so it's really concentrated in time and it's much more concentrated geographically so that a given political unit that's voting on these decisions could benefit itself and doesn't have to worry about the benefits spilling out to, to other countries. And simultaneously, if you were closing coal plants to stop particulate pollution and replacing them with renewable energy or something else, then that would also have happened to have helped with climate change a very large amount potentially. So maybe even if all we cared about was carbon emissions, we would have done better to set that aside in terms of the public messaging and and continue the environmental campaigns that were extremely prominent in the 60s and 70s around clean air and clean water uh, and you know sell that to the public and sell that to voters and politicians as a way of encouraging people to switch over to, to cleaner power. Uh, I, I know this isn't your, your, your specialty, but what, what, what do you make of that line of argument? Uh, a couple of thoughts, right? So so one, in some ways, it's understandable that this happened. Sort of the, the focus of the, the environmental uh, advocacy group sort of pivoted from local air pollution um, to climate, simply because, you know, places like the, the US, uh, countries in Europe have, have made significant progress on air pollution over the last few decades, right? So... So yeah, I mean, the, the levels are like objectively lower um, and, and therefore I guess it's it's harder to animate uh, folks uh, in, in sort of thinking about the health harms, which is where I guess sort of the, the, the updated literature now is sort of becomes increasingly important. Mm. Um, if it actually turns out to be the case that what we thought were safe levels are, are actually not safe, then, then then there's clearly an argument to sort of uh, reinvigorate that sort of strand of uh, environmental advocacy. Mm. In in places like India, though, I think civil society groups have actually been sensitive to this this entire time, right? The fact that air pollution and and climate change share several similar sources, that sort of similar types of actions can lead to uh, benefits along both those dimensions. I think that's something that that folks have grasped and sort of have actively been working with. So I don't I don't necessarily think that that's a that's a correction that, you know, for example, uh, environmental advocacy groups in India ought to be uh, doing. In fact, there's been a, even even in terms of like the, the literature on this work, there's this expression called co-benefits, which, um, uh, I, I mean, there, there are folks, for example, um, Navroz Dubash, whom I used to work with uh, in the past while I was at the Center for Policy Research, uh, who sort of strongly advocated for the, uh, for countries like India to adopt that lens of, prioritizing actions based on uh, co-benefits such as, you know, uh, improved health, uh, improved quality of life in cities through like better uh, public transport infrastructure and uh, and things like that, and not necessarily think about uh, mitigating global greenhouse gases and, and sort of therefore using that lens even sort of in, in, in international negotiations and so on. So, so yeah, uh, I think in the, in the West, there's the certainly, I mean, it, it's, on the one hand, understandable uh, why this sort of pivot happened. I think there's also increasingly like, a, a case to sort of pivot back uh, towards sort of uh, thinking of it from like a local health harms sort of lens. Um, and I think in places like India, I, I'm, I think we've actually uh, been approaching it from this lens. People have already been alert to this. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious to know, yeah, 
speaking of yeah, health, health harms in uh, richer countries uh, or I guess like countries that have made a lot of progress on air pollution, I'm going to, you know, the majority of listeners live in the US, Australia, UK, some, some in continental Europe. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know, how, how should people think about and approach air pollution in their, in their own lives? How, how worried should, should they be? For example, we've had air purifiers in the office here uh, and in, in my living room for, for the last couple of years. Uh, and I, and <laughs> when I was preparing for this interview, I bought another one for the bedroom <laughs> to, to clean up the air that I'm breathing while, I, while I'm sleeping. Do you, do you think, is that a sensible move for people to take in general, selfishly? Yeah, I mean, I, I think defensive measures uh, against air pollution is like an eminently sensible thing to do. Um, I don't necessarily think it's a selfish thing at all. From like a public policy lens, um, this is actually an area that I've sort of struggled with as to, you know, what should governments do, um, especially where in, in places where the, the pollution levels are much higher. Um, like, how do you think about encouraging people, uh, typically the elite and higher income folks Mm. to sort of install air purifiers and like, you know, sort of in some ways look for private solutions to the the problem of air pollution rather than like the harder politics or sort of mitigation. But yeah, I mean, I, 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 I... I think it makes tremendous sense for you to sort of purchase that additional air purifier. Air purifiers were great. It's it's sort of one of those things that it's it's tech that works uh, indoors. Yeah, I mean it, it's definitely not. Yeah, I, I wasn't saying it's uh, selfish, selfishly in a, in a in a bad sense. I just mean from a from a from a personal point of view, is that uh, sure. is, yeah. is, is it is, is it worth the cost? And of course, uh, even <laughs> even someone who can afford as many air purifiers as they would like eventually has to go outside. So it's not a very systematic uh, solution to the to the problem, and it's not the most efficient solution uh, to the to the problem. I think, given that we have lots of options potentially for for, for reducing air pollution. Um, one thing that I've noticed when uh, there's all these websites online uh, where you can just look up air pollution, like uh, what, what's the what's the quality of air. In, in, in your area uh, right right now. Um, and there's quite a lot of monitors in London. Something that I've noticed when checking that regularly is that it's incredibly local, that in, in London you can have like one suburb uh, that's like really dirty right now while another suburb adjacent is has, has really quite clean air and it will just change, uh, flip flip between them. And that it also just varies enormously from, from day to day. Some some days the air is super clean, some days it's, uh, it's, it's super dirty. What's going on with like, why, why isn't the air mixing more <laughs> between, between different suburbs? So if you look at like a like an annual average basis, right? I mean, like the the prolonged exposure standpoint, I'd be pretty surprised if uh, some of that variation actually shows up. It's it, but, but yeah, mm. it's, it's it's definitely the case that in, in, within short term windows there are local hotspots. Uh, this is true in virtually every city. Uh, local sources, like you know, I mean, even sort of significant traffic junctions and so on. I mean, that that can they, that can make a significant difference. To, to local air pollution. Um, so um, hotspots are, are, are definitely a thing. But yeah, I, I think from a prolonged exposure standpoint, unless there is something weird like a, a, a polluting industry, or I, I'd be surprised if there are actually very large uh, variations locally. On average, you mean? When you average over the year? On, on, on average. On, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's also one of those things where... Um, weather and climate like play a huge role in terms of both sort of variations over the course of the day, variations from one day to the next. And potentially, you know, like if if there are cities which have like significant microclimates, mm. it's it's very likely that uh, that will also translate into, you know, sort of spatial heterogeneity in, in air pollution. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so, so, so there has to be something going on where 
just depending on the weather, the air can kind of get trapped in a particular area where it's not, I guess it's not moving upwards, maybe because there's some temperature differential that's preventing that, or it's not, and it's not blowing east or west, so the stuff's not getting removed, and so it can just build up in, in a local area. There was a, there was a couple of hours over the, the previous weekend. So to, to give people some sense of the scale, um, so ideally you should have like below five. Uh, so, so the measure is micrograms per, per meter cubed, but I just think about it in terms of the number because micrograms per, per, sure, per, yeah, yeah. per cubic meter means nothing to me. So ideally the, the air pollution levels of um, PM 2.5 would be under under five i guess under 10 would be okay i guess under 30 would be uh would still be kind of all right um there, there was there's was a while in uh, uh my part of london where it was over 150 <laughs> over the weekend uh really oh like very very severe and you can kind of see the smog uh, uh, at the window and then it kind of just crashed down to 20 again a couple of hours later um so i don't know people, people, people won't be surprised one thing is uh when i got this air purifier it actually shows the number it shows that number on it because uh, it's got a sensor that causes it to turn on or off and that's caused me to have this sense of like how the air quality in the area is changing over time over the day and just how much it varies um which is something that i had had no intuition for previously and it's maybe it's, it's maybe a lot more um alert to evolution i'm not sure that's entirely good because there's only so much you can do about it but i wonder whether that's something that uh, would be helpful for like if, if, if people had all of these monitors if they were seeing these numbers regularly i wonder if it would be a much larger political issue because people would appreciate what's going on that, that that'd say that it's not just kind of steam in the area it's actually it's actually pollution that's harming their health yeah no i mean i think london in many ways has been something of a leader uh on this right I, the the density of the low cost sensors that that London has is extremely unusual, um, and and is sort of becoming a bit of a model for for other cities to sort of replicate when it comes to thinking about how one monitors air pollution. So so traditionally, you you basically had a few monitors, but like these very sophisticated, expensive monitors uh, in like a, a few sort of carefully selected locations. But you know, sort of since we've learned that. They can actually be the kind of uh, variation from one neighborhood uh, to another, from one road to another, and so on. And that might actually be a, a reasonable thing to target the sources of that that local variation, even in order to make like a a larger impact on the the air quality in the city. There has been a growing sort of call for, you know, how do you integrate things like low cost sensors, which you know didn't exist even like, I don't know, uh, like 10 years back, uh, in, in the sense, we, we weren't sure about sort of the quality of the data that they, that they produce. Um, we've made significant progress uh, in, in the last decade or so, um, have a, a reasonable handle on, on sort of their strengths and limitations. Um, so yeah, so there's this call to have hybrid monitoring networks, sort of complement the, the more expensive stuff with just a very large number of low-cost sensors to try and measure this variation. I'm curious, uh, did you figure out what led to that sort of spike? No, 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 I, I couldn't figure it out. I, I, I did, uh, it did cause me to Google, where, like, are there fires in Europe that, uh, and some, maybe the huh. smoke from, from the forest fires is blowing up? But no, there wasn't. I, I think it must have been something to do with the weather, I think, trapping pollution in the area. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a mystery. But I mean, I, I have noticed... Uh, when I've checked it many times, that you, mm-hmm. you know, it'll show you a graph of the increase and decrease over the day. And it is just super variable uh, over a period of days. It will fly up and down all the time. Uh, that, that was just like the most extreme that I've ever seen. Yeah, 150, I think, is objectively bad. Yeah, it was worse than, it was mo- worse than most of India. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, that's, that's sort of about air pollution at a, at a, at a high level. Let, let's zoom in and talk about uh, India and Indian cities, which is kind of the place you know the most about and the thing that you've been uh, specifically tasked to, to, to work on. Um, is it a way of describing how bad is air pollution in India in, in particular? And like, wh- wh- where is it the biggest problem? 
Yeah, so um, going back to the number that you just mentioned, right? Uh, WHO recommending that the safe level is five microgram per meter cube. The population weighted average in India is something of the order of 80. And uh, the, the most polluted parts of the country in terms of an annual average will have levels that are closer to something like 120, 130, right? Um, and the the times of the year where uh, air pollution in India sort of makes headlines globally, we're talking about like 24-hour averages that are of the order of 400, 500. So I think that's, I guess, one way of thinking about uh, the, the levels of air pollution. Alternatively, Something like 80%, 76%, I think was the number that, that, that one of the papers had estimated, of, of Indians breathe air that is worse than the national standards. The national standards, by the way, are, are at 40, right? 40 microgram per meter cube. Hmm. Uh, so there's a reasonable chance that the national standards are actually extremely lenient and, and, and that even if uh, a city was sort of compliant with it, uh, that, that there was still sort of breathing air that's, that, that's pretty harmful. But even relative to those national standards, more than three-fourths of the country uh, breathe dirtier air. This is in particular a problem in uh, northern India. Um, in fact, if you sort of zoom out a little bit and look at South Asia, um, there's something called the, the Indo-Gangetic Plain. So, so basically the plains that are in some ways defined by uh, the river uh, Indus, and uh, which, is, which is in Pakistan, and um, Ganga that, that flows through, through India. So basically spanning from the, the eastern Punjab province in Pakistan, all the way across North India, covering uh, several states, uh, Rajasthan, Punjab, Haryana, Delhi, Uttar Pradesh, Bihar, West Bengal, um, parts of Nepal, uh, the, the plains in Nepal, so the, the southern part of that country, and all of Bangladesh, right? So, so this contiguous region, which is called the Indo-Gangetic Plain, has particularly high levels of, of particulate matter. And in some ways, it's sort of a large-scale version of uh, what we just discussed in terms of, you know, climate and, and sort of uh, topography and so on playing an important role. Um, essentially, the, the Indo-Gangetic Plain is sort of this basin that's basically bound by the, the Himalayas in the north, right? And, and with like winds from uh, the Indian Ocean sort of pushing and sort of keeping the air in. That therefore, you know, sort of it, it, it becomes sort of a, a sink of, of air pollution where... In particular times of the year, it's, it's very hard for the pollution to escape uh, easily, uh, leading to the, the, the very large numbers that we just went over. Uh, this is also an extremely densely populated part of the world. So if people look at a map of air pollution in India, they'll see, well, it's, it's an issue everywhere. But in the south, it's not nearly as bad as the north. There's this kind of strip, uh, as you're talking about, this, this, this basin that runs from around Pakistan in the west towards Bangladesh in the east. It's like this, like this big stripe. Uh, yeah, and roughly how many people live in that, in that area? So uh, about uh, 700 million people uh, live uh, in, in this broader region. And uh, yeah, uh, Bangladesh is a densely populated country. Uttar Pradesh almost completely falls within this region. And it's, it, it, it would basically be one of the largest countries in the world if, if it weren't a state in India and you know, was a country. Yeah, so uh, that's, that's sort of, I think, principally is, is sort of what makes this uh, a significant public health crisis. Mm. 
an expression I hadn't heard before, uh, which I encountered uh, preparing for this, is air shed. So it's an, an air analogy of a, of a watershed. Is it, It's this area where the air just keeps circulating within this circle and kind of pollution in any part of it can potentially spread to any other part of this of this broader air shed. And I guess you're saying it's bound. This is created by the Himalayas on the north blocking the air from moving north. And then you've got the winds coming up from the sea and from the south of India. And you've got this pocket here that just get where the air gets stuck. And so pollution that's produced by industry or farming or whatever can just circulate there for quite a long time before it manages to leave that area. And unfortunately, that also just happens to be the area where there's maybe the greatest concentration of people in India, more or less. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, One of the uh, consequences of this idea of an airshed uh, also means that for individual sort of cities and states to be able to make progress can actually be quite hard because they're substantially affected by you know, sort of the regions that sort of uh, around that city in a particular state, they might actually be dependent on actions in the neighboring state, the neighboring country even, uh, making this um, a particularly tough nut to crack. Yeah, this, so this, so it's not as bad as climate change, but there's uh, still a, a significant kind of public good externality issue here where, you know, one city might pollute and maybe most of the harm of that pollution is done in other cities, possibly other states, I, I guess, mm-hmm. depending on where you are, conceivably even another country. Um, yeah, I think w- one thing that you mentioned in the presentation is that in, in Delhi, say, roughly 40% of the pollution that someone might be suffering from outdoors in Delhi comes from Delhi, but 60% might be coming from elsewhere in this, in this air shed. So mm-hmm. that, yeah, it really is this uh, kind of common, uh, it has to kind of be this, this common project. Otherwise it's very hard to, to, to make major progress on it. Correct. And uh, I mean, Delhi gets a lot of attention, but there are a bunch of uh, cities that are sort of downwind of Delhi, which in many ways are affected by pollution from Delhi, right? And which uh, as a result end up having even higher levels of air pollution. And uh, I mean, sure, they're not as as sort of populated as Delhi is, and they're not as large a city, but in many ways are sort of substantially dependent on, on, on Delhi uh, sort of getting its act together. Um, there are parts of the Indo-Gangetic plane where Compared to the 40 or 50% that sort of um, Delhi sort of is responsible for its own pollution, the corresponding numbers might be as low as maybe 30%, right? Um, and therefore completely dependent on, on actions outside. Something that the, the larger policy and regulatory infrastructure, at least so far, is just not well equipped to do. Yeah, yeah. So at a high level, uh, where does air pollution in that airshed come from? I'm thinking, you know, there's like cars, there's, uh, you know, coal uh, plants, there's industry and so on. Is there a way of breaking it down? Yeah. uh, So uh, there are multiple sources. Um, So one way I like to think about this is that uh, this is sort of a 19th, 20th and sort of 21st century problems coexisting with each other. Right. Uh, so from like the, the 19th century, if you will, there is the question of like poor energy access, right, uh, for, for, for cooking and heating and so on. And therefore, a very large number of, um, and, and we're talking about hundreds of millions of people being dependent on uh, solid fuels for like daily uses like cooking and heating, right. And, and so that continues to be widely prevalent and um, that is a significant source of air pollution that is likely to be the, the largest source, right? From among the 20th century sources, um, there are things like waste burning, um, which we sort of briefly touched upon earlier, widely prevalent practice. So uh, so there's this waste burning, uh, there is um, road dust, for example, which is, which is basically roads being poorly maintained and as sort of vehicles go over it, um, it sort of breaks down a little bit and it actually adds up to quite a quite a significant fraction. 
And then there are the sort of more sort of standard sources that folks would be familiar with. Uh, things like vehicles, industries, power plants that sort of burn fossil fuels, results in greenhouse gases, but also leads to a bunch of uh, different pollutants, um, which then sort of react in the atmosphere, eventually uh, forming particulate matter. So so particulate matter as a class, right, uh, can get directly emitted from, from some sources, construction dust, road dust, from, you know, to some extent combustion. But it also is something that gets formed in the atmosphere because other gases that have been emitted react and, and, and form particles that are less than 2.5 microns. Yeah, is it possible to give kind of rough rough percentages for uh, how much or like what fraction of it is coming from each of these different categories? Okay, so so, so let me start with a with a city like Delhi. Uh, Delhi is relatively well studied. There are multiple um, uh, what's what are called source apportionment studies that try and attribute uh, the the contributions of different sources. For a city like Delhi, waste burning, vehicular emissions, industrial and power plant emissions, and uh, a variety of residential and commercial uh, sources, mainly in the, in the preparation of food, right? Um, all of these are, you know, give or take uh, sort of 20% plus or minus 5%, right? As, as classes, they're sort of uh, roughly similar to each other. Now, each of these are actually fairly broad categories. Like among industries, you have, you know, power plants and, and, and other large uh, uh, formal uh sort of manufacturing plants and things like that. But then there are also a variety of um, sort of smaller enterprises, uh, informal industries, like, you know, uh, the, the battery recycling type things uh, or, or e-waste recycling. Uh, again, these things can add up to quite a bit. So, so there are multiple uh, individual sources that are part of these larger classes. With vehicles, for example, again, you, you, are, you have some uh, subcategories like trucks, which might... You know, there, there are a small number of vehicles on the road, but can have disproportionately large uh, contributions, while the number of like cars and two wheelers might actually be much smaller uh, relative contributors. So, so yeah, so for a city like Delhi, you, you almost have this sort of equalish split between um, these four or five uh, broad categories of sources. At a national level, um, there seems to be evidence that suggests that that household burning is the single largest source, accounting for something between 25 to 30% in terms of the, the ambient air quality exposure. This, by the way, is separate from the impacts it has indoors. Mm. Uh, and, and we can come back to this point uh, uh, later. About 10% each is from industries and power plants. And then you have uh, smaller and smaller shares. So at, at a national level, uh, vehicular emissions actually might potentially be in the single digits and, and you have uh, industrial and, and residential uh, sort of actually accounting for the, the vast majority. Yeah. So I guess uh, an unfortunate bottom line from that is that there's not there's no one thing that if we just targeted that, that would really solve the issue. Unfortunately, it's spread somewhat evenly across quite a lot of different sources. So in order to make big progress and reduce air pollution by half or two thirds or four fifths, we're gonna, <laughs> you're going to have to deal with like five different five different categories in a pretty big way. Exactly. And, and that's one of the things that, uh, that also makes the air pollution in developing countries hard and, and also sort of different from um, air pollution uh, as was sort of seen uh, in, in the US or, or, or UK in, the, in, the, in the, the first half of the 20th century, right? Where it was primarily dominated by industrial pollution and to some extent, the use of coal for uh, heating. 
there's just like a much wider variety of of, of sources um, which sort of fall under different sort of government agencies which operate at different scales um, and, and therefore uh, making progress uh, becomes harder to do. And, and you would have to make progress on, on each of these sources because they all contribute enough. Yeah, one uh, one category you haven't mentioned yet is um, which which get, gets a lot of coverage in the media is stubble burning, uh, which is I think the, the burning of leftover crops as part of the, the the growing cycle. Where does that fit into the into the picture? Is that is that a big source or a, a relatively small source? So um, stubble burning is an important episodic source, right? Um, in, in the sense, in the months of October and November when air pollution. Uh, level sort of peak in North India, stubble burning actually is a significant contributor. It's, it's possibly even the primary contributor in those few weeks, right? Um, so uh, much of the, the burning of crop residue happens over the course of like three or four weeks. So this is basically the residue that remains after paddy has been harvested and as the farmers get ready for like a new cropping cycle of wheat. And um, basically they have a narrow window uh, in, in which the the stuff has to be cleared out. The, the, the field is made ready for like a new crop and burning it is sort of the fastest, cheapest way of like getting rid of it. And because it sort of coincides with the time when these other changes are happening to the to the weather, um, the stuff that gets emitted basically stays in the air uh, for for longer durations. It doesn't get cleared away very quickly, uh, leading to apocalyptic levels of, of air pollution. So, it's an extremely important source during those few weeks. Not just in Punjab and Haryana where this happens, but but really. Uh, the, the the pollutants travel. Um, it it's a significant contributor across North India. There is some evidence to suggest that it actually may travel hundreds of kilometers to to, to even southern India, um, and and contribute a small share. So it gets a lot of attention because it is the principal source when air pollution makes news. Seen over the course of the year, it is uh, it's not an unimportant source, but it's not nearly as important as the amount of sort of airwaves it receives. Whereas, you know, stuff like household burning and so on are, are largely under the radar, um, despite sort of how important they are. Yeah. Maybe one reason it gets attention, at least in the foreign media, is that it's so strange. Or, uh, you know, as someone from here, my, my, my question would be, why do Indians put up with this? Why why don't they ban people from burning crops in a, that, that, that's causing what you describe as apocalyptic conditions for them. Uh, I mean, I guess we, you don't want to get too caught on this because as you're saying as a percentage over the year of all exposure, it's 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 not so large, um, but it is it is very striking. Uh, it is striking. And I mean, like it does lead to significant short-term sort of heightened exposure and therefore a, a significantly larger number than usual uh, having to be admitted to the hospital because of breathing difficulties and so on. So so it, it, it does have significant impacts on health. I guess part of the, uh, the, part of the answer to you is that it, it's in fact banned. Um, like this is not something that is sort of allowed by law. It just happens at a scale that's so large and by a group that is um, sufficiently politically influential um, that there is very little that folks can do in terms of just enforcement. I mean, you, you, it, it, it's hard uh, for governments to um, go around finding everybody uh, who indulges in this. So yeah, uh, so but but yeah, in, in in fact, these are banned in the in the uh, strict sense of the law. 
Okay, yeah, so uh, okay, so maybe we should come back to enforcement as a key issue uh, later on, or the, or, the, or the politics of it all. Um, is there any really important data that we wish we had about all of this that, that, we, that we don't have? So uh, one of the things that we don't have is sort of better measurement of, of air pollution in rural areas, right? It's the kind of thing that might also help with the monitoring of, of stubble burning and, and so forth. But um, the complete absence of air pollution monitors in, in rural India is uh, is a significant problem. So there's a very large part of this country and, and the, the region at large that's just where we don't have enough uh, sort of visibility and insight into how pollution changes. Many cities in India are still under-monitored. Uh, so Delhi actually is a, is, is a pretty well-monitored city at this point, but uh, this isn't the case with virtually every other city compared to Delhi, which may have something like 40 to 50 monitors uh, operational on any given day, most cities actually have two, you know, and so so that's that that remains a problem. With the source apportionment, like the numbers that I gave you on, for example, the contributions of household versus industries and power plants, most of these are based on the, the results of models so so these are uh, these are not measured these are these are estimated from uh, a bunch of sort of atmospheric chemistry and dispersion models uh, relying on uh, something called emission inventories which are basically gridded estimates of emissions from different sources the emission inventories are likely to be very wrong so we, we just don't have a good um, measurement of how much is getting emitted and and that sort of becomes the basis for all these subsequent estimations of the the relative shares of different sources and so on, we have substantial gaps to fill uh, on on the emission inventories, right? And, and those are pretty fundamental because without that, um, it's it's hard to be sure of how much different sources contribute. Uh, these estimates of you know how much of air pollution in Delhi is because of the neighboring states. All of these are sort of model generated. All of these are reliant on being reasonably correct about where the emissions come from. So, so that's a that that's a that's a big gap. There are actually a whole bunch of uh, fairly fundamental gaps in in our understanding of air pollution. Yeah. So, so in terms of the, the the broader global picture, I think India has among the worst air pollution in the world. There's, I think, air pollution is getting worse in Africa at quite a quite a rapid pace. And there's there's some countries in Africa that are now giving India a run for its money. I, I think uh, DRC might be now be the country, the largest, uh, like a very large country that has made among the among the worst uh, air pollution in the world. On the other hand, uh, China has managed to reduce its air pollution levels by more than half over the last 10, 15 years. So, that, so they managed to make a lot of progress, and it's a it's a it's a less severe issue issue there now. Now. But what's the trend in India over the last couple of decades? Is, is it kind of just getting getting worse as the country uh, industrializes? Yeah. So, I mean, at least till the um, till a few years back, the, the trend had been sort of almost a, a, a sort of a monotonic increase in sort of the levels of uh, air pollution across India. There were parts of the country that, you know, had virtually negligible sort of, or at least that, that had significantly cleaner air that it had become much worse as sort of industrial and mining activity uh, sort of sped up. So in general, if you looked at a map uh, of, of of air pollution in India, in, in many ways, it has sort of grown a deeper shade of red. And, and that sort of that region has sort of expanded over time and the sort of new pockets of uh, high levels of air pollution. In the last few years, there's been something called the National Clean Air Program that has been largely restricted to cities. It's it's in many ways an imperfect program. It's sort of 
insufficiently funded, for example. And in many ways, it's really sort of an, a start more than more than anything else. But I, I think there are reasons to be cautiously optimistic that levels have at least sort of plateaued a bit, maybe even reduced by you know, 10, 20% in, in some cities. Uh, not nearly the kind of uh, progress that sort of uh, cities in China uh, seem to have seen, um, you know, over the last decade. I, I think bet- the estimates that between, uh, I'd like to say 2010 and 2020, uh, China on average uh, saw like a 30% reduction in uh, in PM 2.5 levels that might very well be higher now. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, so, so they, they have in fact managed to make uh, significant progress. Uh, whereas uh, I think Indian cities sort of at, at an earlier stage of that process. Yeah. So, so in terms of explaining why this kind of northern uh, Indian airshed has among the, the worst pollution in the world, I mean, one, one thing is just it's incredibly densely populated. Another is that it's industrialized enough that there's quite a lot of pollution, but it's not maybe rich enough and developed enough yet that people feel wealthy enough to, to do a whole lot uh, in, in order to reduce it. Oh, and, and also it's just an area where, where air really gets trapped. So air pollution that gets produced there doesn't doesn't just blow out to sea. Uh, so so it, can, it can really build up over, over time. Are there other kind of possibly policy mistakes or, or other, other other key factors in terms of uh, India in, in particular or the politics or, or the industry or the, or the direction that, uh, that, that the country's gone that has made air pollution uh, worse? Huh. So I think the at, at a high level, it's less about policy mistakes uh, than it has been about policy neglect, right? So the Air Act in India, it, you know, sort of dates back to 1981, and in many ways, the regulatory apparatus that sort of resulted from the Air Act is sort of reflects the understanding, you know, of that time, right? So the 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 pollution control boards, the pollution control boards at the state level and at the central or, or, or federal level, these have been primarily set up to deal with industrial pollution. Because at the time, um, sort of that was the, the general sense that, you know, this has got to be an, an industrial emissions kind of a problem. Over time, um, and so like in the in the mid to late 1990s, primarily because of sort of civil society advocacy and the interventions of the uh, the judiciary, the the, the Supreme Court uh, of India, uh, it sort of expanded to include vehicular emissions in big cities. But till the maybe the middle of the last decade, you know, like around 2013, 2014, 2015, where in many ways air pollution once again started becoming more visible um, in Indian media and therefore, you know, sort of it became sort of more salient. Um, and, and there were a bunch of these source apportionment studies that got commissioned and, and got publicized. That was it. So that, that, that was basically the extent to which the the regulatory apparatus was ready. So these other sources like waste burning or or household burning, they were completely neglected, right? Household burning, for example, and I think this, we've still not sort of recovered from that. Uh, it's assumed that the household burning of solid fuels is something that leads to indoor air pollution and that really doesn't have much of an impact on pollution outdoors. That's just not true as per the the, the literature. And um, so, yeah, so that's that's sort of been completely neglected and sort of treated as sort of a, a distinct problem. Because the regulatory apparatus has been set up for industrial pollution, the pollution control boards are are not really well equipped to deal with sort of the updated understanding of where air pollution seems to come from and therefore what you ought to be doing about it, right? Um, So if you consider, for example, waste burning, um, this is something that really falls under the jurisdiction of the municipal corporations, the, the local government. The municipal corporations have never had to think about air pollution like ever, right? This simply isn't something that 
they think of as something that falls under their mandate till at least very recently and therefore the the agencies that are supposed to be doing something about air pollution the, the pollution control boards don't have the jurisdiction on on this source the agencies that do have the jurisdiction i just they uh, have not had the regulatory experience or the the capacity to deal with this and and therefore it has sort of fallen under fallen between the the the, the cracks a bit in terms of policy missteps though um, when it comes to industrial pollution the the regulatory regime in, in many ways has sort of not been designed in a manner that is flexible enough and uh, sufficiently in sync with sort of the challenges of regulation in the field right so with with industrial emissions typically the way uh, regulation functions is that all of these industries that pollute have chimney stacks right from where the the the, the flue gas and, and the other pollutants escape for the longest time um, across the world uh, regulation was basically about like the height of the chimney stack so the assumption was <laughs> that you make that tall enough and uh, the impacts are not sort of felt in the the immediate vicinity which is not untrue except that the pollution can travel and and over time all of this adds up and so so yeah so so the sort of the next generation of regulation in many ways was to set standards for what the concentrations of pollutants in these chimneys could be um so there is a mechanism by which the pollutants are measured uh, in the chimney you, you sort of compare it with what the regulatory standard ought to be in order to comply with these standards the industries basically install a bunch of pollution control equipment uh, scrubbers and filters and things called cyclones and so on which are meant to sort of clean up the air and um, regulators basically measure this uh, from time to time if you are found to be above the standards that have sort of been given to you there is some form of you know sort of punitive action right the way this mechanism has been set up in india has sort of relied on sort of uh, what are called command and control instruments right so so basically there is a standard you are meant to be under that standard somebody comes and measures this from time to time if you are above that standard it is a criminal offense and therefore there is going to be like a a lawsuit filed against you you could land up in jail and sort of pay a, a fine of some kind in practice the the legal system in india is sort of backed up uh, most cases take years and years and years uh if uh, the the actual compliance against these standards is quite poor so even sort of based on some data from a few years back something like 50% of uh, uh industries in the state of maharashtra for example were not in compliance with the the particulate matter uh norms um so there's widespread non compliance mm. the pollution control boards are understaffed there is no real mechanism by which they can go after these many industries that are flouting the law as a result for the most part the the regulatory regime just sort of fails right so if uh, a particular industry is found to be non compliant uh, there is sort of a gentle slap on the wrist there is some kind of polite correspondence uh, where the regulator writes to the industry and sort of asks them to sort of explain themselves and and sort of ends with that um, there is very little action sort of taken so the policy misstep i guess is that the sort of evolution that the the regulatory framework should have had over time um from being reliant purely on these extremely rigid some may say even sort of draconian command and control type regulations towards a wider variety of sort of more flexible tools that allow the regulator to sort of levy fines right without having to like file a criminal lawsuit and so forth that that evolution just did not happen 
and and as a result um, non compliance became sort of widespread the amount of industrial activity in the country increased uh, the pollution control boards were never really be uh, able to sort of keep up with it and um, the the one sort of source of air pollution that ought to have been sort of regulated well also did not see sort of much progress i'll try to sum up so there's a whole lot of things that have potentially gone wrong one is that the, uh, the legislation in this area kind of only looks at industrial pollution primarily, you know, a- agricultural sources, uh, household burning, waste, uh, waste management, I guess, uh, you know, roads, roads falling apart. That stuff is kind of ignored because that wasn't really on people's radar in the 80s when this was written. So that's a, that's a massive problem. And then even in the area uh, that the legislation is focused on, industrial pollution. The, the mechanism of enforcement is that occasionally someone will show up and try to measure whether you're in compliance, but presumably they're, they're not super well resourced. So the checks are not very frequent. And then even if they do find that you're non-compliant, the enforcement mechanisms at that stage are so impractical, taking someone to court, which might take years to even get a hearing, that if you're an industry player and you don't want to follow the rules, you can just kind of wait out the regular, you can you can break the rule, hope that you don't get caught. And then even if they do catch you, then you just uh, keep them stuck in correspondence. And ultimately, like ne- no one's ever really going to come and uh, shut down your factory or force you to force you to change your ways. So I mean, in that picture, it's almost surprising that things aren't worse, because it seems like there's almost n- there's like very little in a, in, a, in, a, in a way being being done to to prevent air pollution. That, that's exactly right. And, and thanks so much for summarizing uh, what I assume took several minutes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the what uh, the regulators have therefore uh, sort of done, and I guess minimized the extent to which things can go horribly wrong, is that they're sort of focused on industries that are sort of known to be egregious polluters, right, are, are, are like sort of known problem cases and um, and sort of largely restricted their attention to them. And the vast majority of uh, non-compliant industries, you know, sort of were just um, ignored uh, for the most part. I mean, arguably, uh, Rob, this is a, air pollution in India is about as bad as it could possibly be so oh, okay. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> there's there's yeah there's there's not very not not much uh worse place to go okay um so in a sense this is nice because it means that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit here it seems like it's obvious what changes you could potentially make uh if the government were really up to the up to the task so you could you know create uh, regulations around air pollution that covered a far wider range of sources you could properly resource the agency that's meant to enforce it you could give them many more gradations of possible punishments uh like like you're saying you could use fines <laughs> that, that they're just allowed to impose uh without having to take anything to a court um from what i've heard i, I think you mentioned in a talk that um oddly enough in india when when air pollution comes up the, the government often uh turns to or city governments can turn to outdoor air purifiers for example as a as a as a possible solution, maybe because it's very visible and looks and it kind of looks cool, but is incredibly expensive and incredibly ineffective, as you might imagine. Sticking an air purifier outside, it's there's only so much that that is possibly going to do yeah. if you haven't done anything to control the source of, of of the air pollution. What is going wrong there? What what why why aren't people able to kind of fix these problems? Given that it uh, seems kind of obvious what what improvements there might be. Right. So starting with the the outdoor air purifiers, right. So. I guess the charitable way of seeing it, I mean, I'm a fairly optimistic person. So I guess one way you could see this is that this in some ways is a manifestation of the public demand for like cleaner air going up and like governments at least being forced to do something. And and, and sort of smog towers, as they're called, are, you could imagine sort of the, the case for them, right? That they're sort of plausibly useful, like they'll do something. They're sort of physical, visible manifestations of the intent of governments to like clean up the air. 
and perhaps equally importantly it leaves nobody worse off i guess in the in, in the near term so because taxpayers yeah but. the taxpayers <laughs> but but it's sort of it's it's not as visible spread very widely exactly and 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 so that's that's one reason why smog towers are so attractive that that you don't actually have to like most regulation has winners and losers um and and so here except for i guess the the taxpayers um who might not be noticing it um nobody's really left worse off um and and therefore it sort of is sort of politically very viable but yeah i mean let let's be clear these are this is an absolute waste of resources they will do absolutely nothing i mean sure they may clean up the air like a couple of meters away from wherever they are stationed but you know that's <laughs> yeah that's it's it's highly ineffective part of the problem here seems to be that it's look the, the sources are visible sure uh for some of them there are like obviously good longer term actions that you ought to be taking um so vehicles are a problem you need to like reduce the number of private vehicles on the road you need to reduce the number of dirty vehicles on the road uh so you can have a bunch of policy actions that try to clean up the fleet that could potentially you know sort of increase the uh, improve the public transport infrastructure in cities and things like that but in the near term that sort of most governments try to sort of optimize for right one of the challenges is that we don't have like a menu of easy to implement sort of scalable solutions i think that has been one of the challenges uh, and i think there are i i think there's a legitimate uncertainty on you know if you were a a municipal commissioner right in one of the indian cities or you were the the secretary for uh, in, the, in the department of uh, environment at a state level and you had a pot of money to be able to deploy I do think that there is a certain gap in terms of saying, okay, well, here are sort of the top ten things that you ought to be doing. Here are like the sort of the most cost-effective interventions that you ought to be investing in. I think that that there's actually a, a, a significant gap in the literature. It's it's not sufficient to say that you know, I mean, you need to be ha- uh, you need to have more uh, buses on the roads. That that might not be under your mandate. That might be much more expensive than you can afford uh, in the near term uh, with the sort of constraints you've got. And I think that's that's been one of the challenges with sort of being able to make progress in india uh, as a result um, for the most part what the the cities have been doing is is basically dust control type measures right uh, having these um, mechanical street sweepers clean up the roads like they'll do something we don't necessarily know how much they actually improve the the air pollution you know even on these roads that's for example some of the stuff that we've just funded uh, to try and like get a handle on how much of an impact this might truly have it's not obvious at all that these are that these are cost effective things to be uh, putting your money behind but it's the kind of thing where it's not expensive enough to you know for you not for the for the government agencies not to be able to procure them and again it's it's the kind of capital uh, investments that the corporations can do more easily than some of the harder sort of improvements in terms of how you operate how waste management in a particular city functions i mean that's like a systemic thing right um it's much easier to like purchase 10 of these street sweepers or something put them on the road and hope to god that it sort of makes a difference uh, and unfortunately that's that's what they've been doing yeah isn't there also an issue that dust particles tend to be relatively large which means that they're less likely to cross the blood barrier into the lungs and into the rest of the into the rest of the body i mean so like actually actually like soil dust i think is rarely under that you know pm 2.5 threshold that makes it, things particularly dangerous 
Uh, that's true. I mean, I guess there is, in, in sort of their defense, there is a, a fraction of uh, the dust particles from roads, from from construction activities that are actually finer than 2.5. But your point is, is well taken. I, I think that that's exactly right, that by focusing on dust control, you're probably spending your resources on larger particles that are, you know, relatively innocuous. Yeah, something that's very visible, but not quite as not quite as dangerous. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so so a key issue or a key barrier potentially is that governments don't have a clear menu, a clear smorgasbord of here's the cheapest way to abate um, uh, air pollution per dollar. Here's like the, here's the easiest way to do it. And then, then they just start working down. Instead, they're grabbing at things somewhat scattershot that are very visible and don't create, uh, don't create identifiable losers who are going to campaign against it. So maybe let's dive in and try to uh, th- think about that menu. Um, what are some of the best kind of object level interventions or changes that could be made at a technical level to industry, to transport and so on, that would do a lot to reduce dangerous air pollution at relatively little human and financial cost? I guess uh, part of the preface on like not having that list of actions uh, also means that I don't necessarily I, have a, a great, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I don't think anybody does. I and mean, that's, that's, just, that's just one of the challenges. Yeah. That said, some of like the almost certainly uh, low hanging fruits or no regret measures in some ways is basically anything that improves energy efficiency, right? Anything that makes vehicles more efficient, uh, anything that makes industries more efficient. Most energy efficiency type interventions tend to pay for themselves over time and will almost certainly reduce the amount of fuel that gets burned. The lesser fuel that's burned, the lesser pollution there will be, right? So um, as, as a general class of actions, anything that improves the combustion, uh, the efficiency of the combustion of coal, the the use of fuels. Um, the, the next sort of set of things will likely be on um, household air pollution, right? I mean, so, so this is a slightly harder source to be sure of, right? So, uh, like I mentioned, there are tens of millions uh, of households that rely on the use of solid fuels to some extent, uh, some might be sort of exclusively dependent on them. Some might be using for like, I don't know, 50% of their, their cooking needs, right? The cleaner fuel to be using here would be uh, liquefied petroleum gas. Perhaps the cleanest one would be uh, induction cook stoves and, and, and electric cook stoves. But that sort of depends on you having reliable electricity and so on, which is another problem, which sort of in many ways precludes this as a serious option in, in rural areas, right? Mm. Historically, liquefied petroleum gas um, used to be subsidized. A couple of years back, the subsidies were removed. I mean, there was a a, a large government program uh, at the federal level to you know provide something like eighty million households connections uh, to like this cleaner gas, right? But over time, um, the the subsidies themselves uh, for continued usage of the LPG was sort of removed, uh, was, was discontinued, right? Um, they have recently been reintroduced, but at like modest rates. But they're likely to be insu- uh, sufficient. This is perhaps at a policy level the the most important intervention that will have sort of large improvements in air quality associated with it and so on. It's also incredibly expensive, right? Just from a fiscal standpoint, um, this will likely cost something like ten billion a year, perhaps more. Yeah, I mean it's 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 uh, it, it much of the LPG also gets uh, is is based on sort of imports and and therefore there is a larger sort of energy security question associated with that as well. All of this has made the federal government uh, sort of reluctant to reintroduce subsidies at a at a larger scale. So while it is likely to be uh, to be pretty cost effective, 
um, for, a, for a government program, by which I mean sort of a, a back of the envelope estimate I had was that this may uh, cost something like $800 uh, per daily averted, which, you know, would not be a, a, a give well top charity level uh, thing, but for like for government policy that might actually be actually incredibly uh, cost effective because of the sheer uh, uh, sort of fiscal costs that it sort of entails. It's been hard to hard to make progress on, on, on this particular action. Or it's, or it's something that was tried, but then I guess just the cost was so great that governments didn't want to continue these subsidies uh, in, in, indefinitely, which I guess makes some sense in a, in a kind of lower middle income country like India. Okay, so, we, so we've got the first cluster was energy efficiency, which you know, I suppose a general stylized fact that people, uh, people claim is that around the world, uh, businesses and individuals, households, they don't invest enough in reducing, in, in improving energy efficiency, even in order to like maximize profits, maybe because it uh, moves all of the costs up front and and the benefits come over a long period of time. Uh, people tend to delay investments in new equipment that, that would improve energy efficiency. That's something that could be relatively cheap over the long term uh, that could reduce emissions a whole lot. And you know, not only would it reduce uh, burning of fuel, but in many cases, it might uh, mean getting new equipment, which presumably might be better on emissions as well, simply because it was new and the most updated you know, car or, or, or whatever. So one thing that you pointed out in uh, one of your talks is that Household waste burning is much worse than, than than you might think. So not only is it probably the largest single category, a largest single source of particulate pollution over this airshed, but it kind of double dips. So we've been talking about outdoor air pollution uh, mostly today, but if you talk about air pollution as a whole, uh, I think that the, the standard measures from the World Bank and World Health Organization and so on are that like roughly two thirds of the health damage from air pollution is done outside from outdoor air pollution, and one third is done by indoor air pollution. So you've got kind of 6.6 million people roughly, say, dying from outdoor air pollution and 3.3 roughly dying from from indoor air pollution. And now when someone uses, burns wood or something in their house in order to stay warm or in order to to cook food, they firstly suffer the indoor air pollution in the first place because they're, they're, they're right there next to this burning thing that's producing ash. Um, and then and it goes outside. Almost all of it go, leaves the house and it goes and then affects everyone else across the entire airshed uh, on, on an enduring basis. So uh, because it's occurring in the household rather than in a factory that's significant, like that, that people aren't living in, <laughs> uh, yeah. it really gets this extra, extra penalty. Uh, and so that's what, one reason why indoor air Air pollution from from fuel burning has been an issue that I've, that I've heard about for ten or fifteen years. As this is a kind of underrated uh, issue across the the developing world. Unfortunately, it sounds like it's not. There's not a really cheap solution to this because the alternative cleaner fuels. Well, electricity is not that reliable, and natural gas is expensive. Are you saying it's liquid petroleum gas? Is that different than the like uh, gas that I'm familiar it's, it's, with? It's yeah. the same. Yeah, very similar. Okay, same thing. Okay, uh, and I imagine that given that gas prices have gone up a lot over the last uh, eighteen months, it's probably even worse. It's even more expensive now to, to try to get people to switch. Just to clarify one thing: what are people burning in their houses for for fuel? Is it wood, or charcoal, coal? So uh, it's it depends on which part of the country. And I mean, this I guess it's uh, sort of uh, sort of expanding beyond India. It depends on like uh, what sort of easily available around you. So if you're sort of access to firewood, uh, that's what you would use. Um, if you are part of a region where, um, you know, sort of coal mining happens or like coal and, and charcoal are relatively easily accessible, that's something folks use. If cow dung, uh, for example, is is available in, in, in plenty around you, folks sort of 
pat them down and sort of make these things called dung cakes, uh, which are which are also used uh, plenty. Uh, folks use kerosene, but but that's once again uh, uh, relatively expensive compared to uh, these. Uh, so so yeah, so these are these tend to be like the the, the non clean sources, if you will, of of, of uh, cooking energy. Okay, so so I guess the arguments in favor of focusing on fuel burning in, inside houses is that it has this extra penalty in terms of the, the health effects. And I suppose it's a huge source and very scalable to try to get people to stop burning the, the dung cakes and instead get them to switch to to some other source of cooking energy. It seems like it might be kind of or like it's not super low hanging fruit. It's not going to be trivial to persuade the government to spend lots of money on this. And maybe this is something that would get solved over time as the as the country got richer and could afford like, you know, middle income countries to, to rely on electricity or, or other sources more. Actually, one thing that occurs to me is Maybe the key issue here is the electricity reliability. If that's why people in rural areas are not uh, willing to just rely on electric cookstoves, which I don't think are super expensive, then maybe we, uh, what we desperately need to do is get them a reliable source of electricity. And conceivably, even if yeah. that electricity was reduced by burning coal, maybe that would be a significant improvement from an air pollution point of view. Uh, no, I think that's, that's, that, that's true. And that's exactly right. Um, a couple of things, though, right? One is that people's cooking habits is, is one of those things that is pretty sticky. Uh, so folks have been burning, you know, firewood and other solid fuels for cooking basically since the beginning of time, whatever, right? It's the kind of thing where you may have specific preferences for food cooked in a particular way that that uh, rotis, uh, bread, taste better or something uh, when it's sort of cooked on a, a, a solid fuel-based cookstove. I, I don't know if this is true, but you know, it's, it's, it's possible that there are these very specific preferences that, that, that folks may have on uh, in terms of how food tastes and how food ought to be cooked. Even among sort of uh, higher income urban households who actually have reliable electricity, getting them to move away from gas and use electric stuffs instead is not a trivial sort of transition to uh, to happen. I mean, well, it's not trivial in the United States or the UK either. People like their gas stoves here as well. So I think that's something. It's very, very relatable. Exactly, and 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 so that's that's one of those challenges. Now, if the cost of uh, gas increases and uh, it becomes less and less viable, I mean, I guess that's one way in which you can sort of persuade more folks to sort of uh, make the transition. But it's it's not an easy one. So solving the reliability thing, which by the way has its own set of complexities involved, providing reliable, affordable electricity across rural India uh, likely means you're probably doubling down on coal in the near term when it comes to electricity generation. So there is a bit of a trade-off that, that probably exists out there. But even if you solve the this sort of uh, reliability question, there is the matter of getting people to get the right kinds of stuffs, the right kinds of appliances that can sort of run on like the induction stuffs, be willing to sort of uh, make those changes in their cooking habits and so forth, that might potentially be hard. Uh, gas, in some sense, is easier, therefore, right? I mean, it's a, it's a more aspirational fuel. It is obviously cleaner. At least uh, the women who end up doing the, the vast majority of cooking in most of these homes would vastly prefer the gas over solid fuels. They have to bear the brunt. I mean, it's highly inequitable um, how sort of the the burdens of indoor air pollution in particular are shared, um, you know, across genders. So yeah, so in some sense, like gas is the easier lift if the government was sort of persuaded that, you know, that 10 billion a year or whatever it is uh, was was worth it. It's it sort of, it's, it's more amenable to like a top-down sort of one-time type thing than 
and 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 those types of policies are easier to implement yeah than stuff that is sort of more nuanced requires more boutique millions of people yeah yeah okay yeah, so i think we're getting a bit of a picture of some of the challenges here so the the, the picture i'm getting of governance around this issue in india is that people aren't paying a super high amount of attention to it necessarily. And when people do pay attention to it, they don't necessarily have a great idea of what what the cheap options are for for addressing it. And also just this is an area where there's a lot of people who are still really quite poor. They're, they're, they're living in poverty and they, they can't afford to use gas necessarily. They can't afford to switch the equipment that they're using because uh, it's just really, uh, these rural areas are really quite poor and the government doesn't necessarily have the tax revenue to make changes that might seem sensible uh, in, a, in, a, in a somewhat richer country. So I guess I feel like we have a decent grasp now of the, of the household fuel issue. Is there a, kind of another category of change that looks promising uh, that, that you'd like to learn about more or maybe the government should be c- considering making changes in? Um, I guess one uh, general class of uh, pollution sources where in some ways there has been more movement than others is on the vehicular emission side. If you have to reduce air pollution from vehicles, A, you need to get the dirtiest vehicles off the road, move the fleet at large towards cleaner and cleaner vehicles. As a general sort of urban transportation policy, try and incentivize or otherwise sort of move folks from relying on private vehicles to public transport and in general from like motorized transport to sort of non-motorized transport. Although I think that's sort of a, a heavier lift. I mean, India is a pretty hot country. It's it's um, in, in many ways hard for folks. What, what's non-motorized transport? Like bikes or uh, push bikes? Oh, uh, people sort of walking and, walking, and, and see, biking yeah. uh, for, for their commute, right? And so getting folks who've sort of got used to like driving motorbikes to sort of start cycling in uh, in a hot city uh, is, is probably harder and, and also requires sort of significant infrastructural investments and changes in, in just the way the cities are uh, designed. And yeah, so, so it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's, a, it's a non-trivial thing. Now, one of the areas where we've actually managed to make a lot of progress is in moving the fleet at large towards uh, sort of significantly cleaner vehicles. Uh, so for example, a, a few years back, primarily because sort of uh, sort of judicial intervention, India sort of uh, moved from um, the Euro stage four equivalent uh, vehicular standards to Euro stage six. So these are cleaner vehicles running on sort of cleaner fuel with better um, sort of pollution control equipment installed inside. Uh, so the, the, the vehicular exhaust is much, much cleaner by like a couple of orders of magnitude uh, in terms of uh, some of the pollutants that get emitted, right? Um, so so that was like a big win. For that to lead to tangible improvements in air quality, basically, you need to sort of wait out. Uh, most vehicles sort of get, depending on the type of vehicle, whether it's a two-wheeler or a, or a car, you know, they get replaced, you know, uh, every five to 10 years. And, and so that particular policy action will sort of bear fruit, you know, really over the course of a decade. I mean, I guess another way in which you can you can reduce vehicular emissions is to sort of have a um, a robust vehicular inspection sort of program, right? So, so basically, all the vehicles get themselves tested from time to time. There's a certificate that these sort of meet the standards. This is the kind of thing where sort of the Indian state is unlikely to be particularly effective, right? I mean, this is uh, an easily gameable sort of inspection. You know, you can you can pay a very modest bribe, like less than a dollar uh, and get like one of these certificates that sort of say that you're clean. It's, it's, it's very hard to improve uh, 
that that infrastructure then because there are very large number of operators who are certified to like give these clean certificates out uh the vast majority of them are uh susceptible to uh very small bribes and uh that that's the kind of problem where you know uh, it's 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 hard to tighten the the vehicular inspection thing so you're probably i mean the the best course of action is to sort of internalize that reality um in terms of what state capacity is and what can and cannot be implemented and yeah uh, the moving vehicles to a cleaner fleet uh, strategy i think is is something that not just now even in the past has sort of uh, been a an effective way for advocacy to sort of function uh, and, and sort of ask for so that's that's likely to be um, a, a, an area where we've already made a significant improvement with the introduction of uh, electric vehicles now there's a strong case for more and more people to shift it's it's very likely that my next car is an ev right and and that'll be true for for most people out there it it'll just make more and more sense the infrastructure to sort of charge these vehicles and so on will sort of only get better over time so i think in general with vehicular emissions there is a lot of promise uh, for things to sort of organically get better um and for like incentives to be sufficiently well aligned uh, for that to happen the challenge in the near term is what you can do about identifying the most harmful vehicles on the road okay so transport is this other big category and there's a, there's quite a lot of things that that could potentially be be tried i suppose you know one thing would be ideally i suppose delhi and other cities in india might have wonderful underground metro systems uh but that's hard to build anywhere uh, and potentially quite a challenge to challenge to, to to scale up and it's difficult to get people to go on their bikes or to go walking places because it's incredibly hot that's uh that's borderline sadistic so what on earth are we going to do one thing one option would be to try to find all of the old gas guzzling cars that are producing tons of smog the kind of thing that drives me insane on the <laughs> on the streets of london and pull them off of the street. But unfortunately, that is very challenging because there's just too high a level of corruption and people who want to keep driving a car like that will almost certainly be able to work around these regulations and just keep going until the car breaks down. So the more practical idea in that vein is instead to have higher standards for what cars can even be sold in the country and say, well, given, look, we're never going to get these cars off the road. So anything that we sell is just going to keep driving for 20 years potentially. So we need to get ahead and change change the rules so that the cars that we're selling now are cars that we're happy to have on the road in 10, 15, 20 years time. Uh, Presumably these cars that are better in terms of air pollution, better in terms of energy efficiency, are somewhat more expensive. Do you have any sense of how how expensive that is relative to the the improvement in air pollution? Uh, No, I think these actually, again, uh, I I think this is likely a very cost-effective policy action. Um, In a sense, sure, like the upfront costs uh, for most of these will be higher. But, and I guess it depends on the, the specifics of the type of vehicle, on how much more expensive it may be. But these are costs that are borne privately uh, in, in most instances and are, are also likely costs that they'll, they'll pay for themselves in terms of like the reduced fuel expenditure and so on over time. So yeah, so these are actually likely to be pretty cost effective. Identifying the sort of the most gas guzzling vehicles on the road, which, you know, uh, are, are visible polluters, that's a harder one, right? I mean, identifying them, if, if it's not sort of visibly the case, uh, is hard. Uh, and I guess there are sort of different shades of smoke and so on that one can't possibly identify. In, in fact, uh, this may also look very different in different cities. So Delhi, because of uh, court interventions and, and, and uh, also in, in general, like efforts by the, the state government and the federal government, 
compared to most other cities in India, uh, has significantly more stringent rules on which vehicles can ply on the roads. As a result, um, yeah, I, I mean, you'd actually have a hard time finding very obviously polluting vehicles on Delhi's roads. Um, diesel vehicles, uh, diesel cars that are more than 10 years old are just not allowed to ply there uh, anymore. Um, so this is hard to do at a national scale. Um, and unfortunately, what often happens is that the, the vehicles that get off Delhi streets don't necessarily get scrapped, uh, but really show up in like other cities. They just go somewhere else. Yeah. And, and, and so those cities then um, like really get messed up yeah. because, yeah, um, they may not really get one of these restrictions possibly ever, uh, or, or at least in the, in the foreseeable future. So, yeah, so that's, that's, uh, that's been a bit of a challenge. Let's just talk about this this court inter intervention for a second, because something that was quite striking when I was uh, doing doing background research here is the role that courts have played in air pollution in India o- over the years. It, as as uh, someone who's uh, not from India, it kind of struck me that courts were playing a borderline legislative role. Maybe in, in the absence of actual politicians doing anything, courts thought that they like they had to step in and kind of legislate from the bench in order to try to make some of these changes. Yeah, I understand. I mean, I'm sure that so there's lots of cities across this this region, but in, in Delhi specifically, there was court cases. Where where I, don't, I can't remember what court, but some court said these private buses and public buses in India are too polluting. We have to get new buses and they have to use uh, natural gas. Uh, that's like what, what, how we are going to interpret the law. Uh, and then this didn't happen for a while, uh, maybe because it was too expensive or people weren't willing to spend their money on it. And then ultimately the court just insisted that they come off the road even though new buses hadn't been purchased. And so the, this whole bus system, this whole private bus system kind of disappeared. And unfortunately, it wasn't replaced by cleaner buses. It was replaced with people driving cars or using other using other ways to get around so it really backfired and probably made the problem worse uh and possibly made things worse it's kind of an interesting example of maybe courts don't have necessarily the flexibility or the understanding to be doing these kinds of like what you would might expect a government agency to be doing um like setting different priorities and figuring out where they want to spend money and how to most cost effectively reduce reduce air pollution um yeah is there anything else you want to say about the the, the role of courts in this in this overall picture yeah, I mean, so so like you said, right? I mean, the the judiciary has played an outsized, and in many ways, like a completely unintuitive role uh, in uh, air pollution regulation in India. Basically, you know, there's this instrument of public interest litigations that, you know, that, that have been instrumental in in, in leading to these uh, court judgments. Some of these PILs, by the way, are still active, right? So so the the cases that were initiated in the mid to late '90s that that are still running today. Sorry, you're saying that the court cases are still ongoing. The, the, the court cases are still ongoing. Um, <laughs> okay. and, and so in a sense, there have been multiple sort of orders and judgments, but that it, it hasn't sort of concluded. And the court continues to sort of play this quasi-executive, sometimes quasi-legislative, sometimes role in, in sort of designing policy. Some of those interventions, I think, were ultimately good and, and resulted in, in improvements. Some of those judgments have actually been pretty poor. The courts are simply not the places for for some of these uh, decisions to be made. Yeah, in general, we don't expect courts to be a good place to be doing cost benefit analysis and setting budgets and so on. That's that's like not their strength. It's not the strength of lawyers. <laughs> and, and that's exactly right, and, and it's also not the place where you necessarily have a like a, a, a democratic reconciliation of like the various people who are affected by the judgments. I mean, the, the, the case that you mentioned on like the getting the buses off the road and this mandate that buses can only run on uh, compressed natural gas. It's not obvious if the, the, the state government or the federal government would have made that call because uh, 
Yeah, I mean, it's 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 not obvious that it sort of passes muster in terms of you know who's left worse off. It it did paralyze public transport in in Delhi. It's also true that we can be reasonably confident that uh, Delhi's air quality actually improved for almost a period of five to eight years as a result of uh, that ban. Like you said, uh, the long term impact was that more people then relied on private vehicles because the number of vehicles in Delhi boomed. Um, and, and that sort of was the reason there was a, an, an uptick again uh, in pollution levels, which eventually resulted in sort of increased attention uh, and increased acknowledgement of the problem in, I don't know, like 2014, 2015. The catalyst in 2014, 2015 was unfortunately again the courts, right? Uh, it, it so So yeah, so there has been that sort of problem of policy neglect um, has sort of manifested in the the executive and to an even larger extent, the legislature sort of completely ignoring the problem and the judiciary having to step in. The judiciary is sort of limited to fairly blunt instruments. The courts are not the the, the places for cost-benefit analysis, as you put it. And, and that has uh, unfortunate consequences. That's increasingly... Less and less the case, though. Uh, the courts have become uh, less activist, activisty uh, over time. The smog towers in Delhi, by the way, was uh, a direct uh, result of a court judgment. The, the what, sorry? The, the outdoor air purifiers. Um, okay. Right. Yeah, uh, that, yeah, that came uh, as a direct uh, result of... The courts basically demanded that... Uh, okay. <laughs> Supreme Court demanded that these be set up because something has to be done for, you know, Delhi's air quality. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. right, right, right. Um, this is a little bit embarrassing, but I don't know whether does Delhi have a, a metro system or an underground, or is that, is that common in cities in, in India? And is it possible to expand them? Is that an approach that we should be considering? It is possible. Um, from a cost effectiveness standpoint, uh, uh, urban transport folks tend to sort of stress that buses and like a good bus infrastructure moves more people at significantly lower costs and, and also like sooner, right? In the sense that metro systems take a while to build, takes years and years. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I think in the UK it takes yeah, 5, 10, 15 years to build a station, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and uh, uh, buses and in that sense, it's, it's, it's sort of much more modular. You can sort of increase your bus fleet. Uh, it can sort of um, reach the last mile in ways the metros can never really do. Yeah. But yeah, uh, the, the Delhi metro is, is, is sort of the, the largest metro system in India. And virtually every other city is, is getting a metro of some kind. It's sort of become this aspirational um, piece of infrastructure for, for a city to boast of, right? Like a, a city is uh, better developed uh, if it has a metro system. Um, but it's not obvious that that was the right step from a cost effectiveness standpoint. Okay. Uh, have you looked into buses and maybe advocacy around improving buses as a, as a method of public transport as a possible way to reduce air pollution? So uh, from a grant-making standpoint, we've actually done very little on, on transport emissions, partly because uh, it's, it's a relatively mature field. There are a larger number of organizations. There is funding uh, from among the, the climate foundations, for example, uh, to do some of this work. Uh, so it's, it's not as neglected as some of the other sources of air pollution. The other reason is that if you had to justify these grants from a purely air pollution standpoint and, and sort of not think about what it means in terms of improved, like increased incomes because of greater mobility and improved quality of things like that, uh, which would be the case for me. Um, it becomes harder to justify the, the public transport stuff somewhat. 
All right. Well, let's 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 set that aside because I've got lots of other other questions on other topics. One thing that's jumped out earlier is this issue that there doesn't there's no effective regulation of industrial pollution. I guess from both stationary power plants and from you know actual actual um, non electricity generation uh, industry that the regulations aren't really fit for purpose, and then people can potentially uh, flout them. Now, what one thing would be to say, well. You know, India state capacity here isn't really up to the task of regulating these these industries very well. Uh, you know, evidently that the laws on the books are not terribly good. The agencies aren't very well resourced. Maybe there's some degree of corruption involved as well, and so maybe we just have to live with uh, in that reality. But an alternative approach would be to say, no, this is actually key, and this is the thing that we need to fix. Is we need to get this agency properly resourced. We need to change the legislation so that they can impose fines. Uh, we need to make sure that uh, they they can't wheedle out of it and just just buy time. Have you looked into that as a as a general approach to cost effectively reducing air pollution? Yes. Uh, so, I mean, making progress in industrial emissions is likely um, one of the more tractable things to do here. And you have a regulatory apparatus. Uh, it, it should be possible that from a state capacity standpoint, uh, these agencies are able to plug some of those gaps, hire additional staff and, and be able to uh, regulate industrial emissions better. We have a couple of grants which are sort of uh, you know, sort of governance support in nature and sort of providing fairly broad-based assistance uh, to, to state governments. Um, and in some instances, they have been working on industrial emissions. Unfortunately, it's it's an area where, you know, we should be able to do more grant making and, and just haven't done enough uh, so far. Well, it's, it's, you're being harsh on yourself. It's early days. <laughs> you're, only, you're only in year two. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure, sure. But uh, that is true. Uh, but at the same time, um, I guess from... Yeah, I mean, and, and we can talk a little bit more on sort of what the the, the portfolio looks like at the moment, the, the grants that we've made, and, and and why we've made those as opposed to others. But I think it is it is the case though that as a researcher, I used to sort of stress on the need to prioritize industrial emissions better for all of these reasons, uh, which as a grant maker, I don't think I've followed up on uh, nearly as much as I should have. So, so what's appealing about focusing on industrial emissions? I suppose one thing might be that you could reduce emissions a lot for, at relatively low cost to the industries in as much as you're asking them to buy new equipment or properly use the, you know, scrubbing, uh, the, the, stuff that, the stuff that scrubs the, the, the exhaust from the, from the factories and so on. And another, uh, like, it's also quite potentially concentrated. So presumably, you know, unlike household uh, wood burning or household charcoal burning, uh, it's uh, we're talking about a much smaller number of actors here. Yeah. And there's also maybe an agency that is in principle kind of on your side where you could go and speak to these bureaucrats and say, we want to get you the legislation that you need and the support that you need. There's a clear actor who you could ally with. Uh, are there any other kind of benefits or or, or like or challenges with, with, with this approach in particular? No, I think those are all exactly right. Uh, industrial emissions uh, is, is one of those sources that are pretty well understood. Um, you have sort of clear, good global best practices, the same scrubbers and and cyclones and, you know, things like that, which mm. folks would use in any part of the world would be applicable here. Um, so, yeah, so that, that the technology is well understood. You, you know what you're going to get at the end of that process. There are emission standards already. The pollution control boards already have the sort of legislative mandate to be able to tighten it in in regions where, you know, which which might be more polluted or... So all of that exists, all of that foundation exists. I guess what was missing was that flexibility, uh, non-compliance to industrial emission standards was a criminal offense and so on, as sort of I talked about earlier. Um, recently, there was a legislative amendment that has sort of decriminalized uh, non-compliance to these standards. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, it's one of those sort of windows of opportunity of trying to figure out, okay, what, what does it then mean um, for how a regulation could work differently than it has done in the 
the last several decades. There is also better technology for monitoring, right? So one way of measuring the emissions from the chimney is that somebody actually physically climbs up a ladder. There is something called a porthole through which you collect a sample of the flue gas, take that to a laboratory and sort of measure um, how much, you know, sort of uh, what the concentration of pollutants in there is and so forth. Um, But you also now have continuous emissions monitoring systems that are basically able to measure these in real time relay the data. So so there have been those sort of technology improvements. Again, SEMS devices are installed, you know, in, in most highly polluting industries already. The the data coming out of several of them is kind of garbage, uh, but it's something that you could sort of fix. Um, basically, these devices have to be calibrated better, have to be maintained well, but that's a solvable problem. And and solvable at like fairly low costs. So it's, it's likely to be a fairly cost-effective uh, policy and providing support to organizations that can help pollution controls, control boards to do this um, are likely to be fairly cost-effective grants as well. Can we talk for a minute about what is the politics of, what's the political economy of air pollution in, in northern India? I mean, you can imagine it's just a typical person like, like you um, might be really inclined to vote for a politician perhaps who says that they can reduce air pollution uh, one way or another. But I guess a typical person doesn't know a ton about the issue or doesn't necessarily have a great sense of what policies would be most effective. I imagine you have some industrial actors who are not really keen to have the government increasing their costs or having uh, you know, <laughs> continuous oversight of, of their pollutions. Maybe, maybe they would lobby against that. It sounded like there's uh, you know, subsistence farmers or you know, small-scale agriculture, where maybe they're not—they they don't particularly want outsiders coming in and telling them how they can engage in their farming. I guess, especially as they're on very low income, so they they can't necessarily afford the 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 fancier equipment that would mean that they didn't need to do stubble burning uh, anymore. Who, who are the key actors and the key interest groups here? Right. So, as you can imagine, and just from that list, right, um, uh, there, there are multiple sources, which means that sort of multiple sets of uh, actors at a high level. Um, Air pollution is still, unfortunately, like a fairly niche, elite kind of a of, of a concern, right? So that that's still sufficient in, in many ways for, for example, for the judiciary to take notice or uh, for air pollution to even sort of make it to like the the ele- election manifestos in Delhi and and elsewhere, right? Uh, because sort of the the elite advocacy groups are able to sort of at least have that uh, level of heft uh, to mm-hmm. be able to push things along. I guess the challenge is that it's not more broad-based than that. And, and that's something that politicians are, are sort of well aware of. When it comes to, for example, the power plants, there is a very, very influential industrial lobby and sort of a, a ministry of power at the at the federal level. That is, for example, it, it just has much more weight than the, the Ministry of Environment, Forest and Climate Change. So the, the Pollution Control Board and the Environment Ministry may sort of uh, set whatever standards they want to. But if the, the coal power plants are not keen to sort of actually comply with that stuff, um, they can and they have uh, persuaded the power ministry to sort of help them push back. Yeah, so some of these issues, for example, with the coal, it, it, it is sort of a hard problem, right? India is uh, a developing country. Electricity demand will only grow. The governments do have uh, sort of both sort of an incentive and possibly even an obligation to sort of provide reliable, affordable electricity. So so that's sort of a hard one. Uh, with stubble burning, the farmers, not all of whom, by the way, are like subsistence level. Some of them are, are, are reasonably well off and, and, and should be able to afford. It's just that 
um, I guess nobody wants to pay. They don't want to. Yeah, exactly. So, so nobody wants to pay costs that you know they don't have to. They they know that they could potentially get away with it. So, for the most part, policy has actually been trying to sort of subsidize this this equipment and and um, sort of provide carrots as a, as opposed to like taking more punitive action because they just are a are sort of a an, an influential uh, group more generally. An alternative way in which sort of the political economy um, uh, concern sort of manifests itself is that even if the political parties uh, want to be seen as progressive on air pollution and, and, and be seen as folks who are sort of taking this seriously, you have an incentive to try and do the kinds of stuff that are sort of more visible in the near term than stuff that are necessarily useful. So so that in many ways creates the, the incentive for uh, at least the mechanical street sweepers, which may have plausible impact and at its extreme, like, you know, invest in the outdoor air purifiers that have no impact, but are, you know, like visible manifestations of uh, intent. There's a bunch of political economy literature that sort of looks at the the Indian state uh, and what it can and cannot deliver uh, well, right? So one of the conclusions there um, has been that when it comes to sort of routine delivery of public services, right, which in many ways are sort of less legible, less visible. There isn't a strong enough incentive to make some of the larger systemic changes and, and reforms there, right? Uh, so the Indian state has is much better at one-time, potentially even like complex things. So, for example, getting the entire country or, or a large fraction of the country vaccinated for COVID uh, might be the kind of thing that, that the Indian state can actually pull off uh, reasonably well, right? Um, or, or like run elections, you know, for, for a country this large uh, in like a smooth uh, sort of streamlined way. Like that's the kind of stuff that the Indian state can pull off quite well. But, uh, you know, you, you have your best officers uh, taking charge of that. Um, yeah. So, so there are ways in which one-time things with like an exit, uh, in, in a sense, those are easier to do. Improving waste management, uh, making the roads better, you know, sort of um, not have potholes and things like that, better designed and better maintained. That's the kind of stuff that's sort of harder to do. Hmm. Yeah. But that may also provide an entry into like uh, solving evolution. I, I would have thought that it was a big quality of life issue in, in Delhi and other places that this would be a higher level uh, issue for voters. And it sounds like it's just, it's not in the top five issues. Uh, is, is there an explanation for that? I mean, partly it is that Air pollution, if it's not at those apocalyptic levels, it, like like we have in November, is largely an invisible thing, right? Or you just get used to it. You're this is just the, the way things always are. Or no, it's just you're saying it's, it doesn't even like smell that bad necessarily. Exactly, so it, it doesn't smell that bad necessarily. Um, like unless you sort of buy into this literature and you're like pouring over the global burden of disease or something like that, right? Um, the impacts are really over a, a large period of time. So. Folks might be dying of sort of lung cancer or uh, might be, you know, sort of getting diabetes uh, more or getting these sort of chronic lung diseases and so forth. But it's it's not easy to attribute to air pollution. Um, so so that that's the that's the challenge. And um, it's, it's sort of hard to make it more visible um, and, and salient to people in their daily lives. So in preparing for this, I made a list of like possible barriers to reducing air pollution in India. And I broke it down into people not paying attention or appreciating that the issue matters much. 
Then there's kind of incompetence and opting for solutions that are daft and don't really make much difference. Then there's like political power of polluters, meaning that it's hard to it's hard to get up sensible solutions that would interfere with their interests. And then there's it just being too expensive for India for for, for a country at India's level of wealth and, and development to pay for for the solutions. Uh, and then uh, there was a fifth one, which is uh, we're mistaken and actually uh, some of these things shouldn't be done because they're because the, the the costs would exceed the benefits. It sounds that uh, at least the first four, all four of them, are quite significant factors that there's not that much attention. When attention is turned to it, dumb stuff gets done reasonably often. Polluters have a lot of potential to block changes. Uh, and also some of the things that we might like to do are kind of just too expensive right right now, uh, like getting lots of people to switch to, to LNG for, for house fuel. I, I agree. Uh, all those four are true. I'm, I'm somewhat more charitable in my read on sort of like the, the incompetence angle. Like, sure, I mean, that, that, that's, that's, that's probably there. But in, in many ways, I think one of the... Uh, limitations from the side of civil society and think tanks and so on um, has been like not providing those solutions in a in a manner that's sort of sufficiently sympathetic of sort of the incentives and constraints um, that like these decision makers face um, and and therefore sort of that the slightly more nuanced lobbying or advocacy or whatever you'd like to call it I think that's that's something that's sort of been missing. Part of it is that there are some legitimate knowledge gaps, but so I don't think the incompetence is necessarily solely uh, on the side of the government here. Um, is uh, just just on that last one that uh, maybe something shouldn't get done. Of course, as a country gets richer, often air pollution uh, goes up, but also people get more reliable access to electricity. They, uh, you know, have better access to transport. Uh, just GDP goes up and uh, health improves in other ways for all these uh, reasons. Is it possible that some things that uh, you and I might be inclined to push for, or at least I might be inclined to push for, would in fact on net be bad because they would have too too damaging um, an economic impact? Uh, and 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 you know, there's lots of there's lots of pollution that presumably we think should happen. You know, if if, if we tried to reduce air pollution eighty percent overnight, it would actually be a catastrophe because all sorts of really important stuff would have to stop. Yeah, what's the, what's the risk of kind of uh, things backfiring? I think the key is the the the, the speed of this. Um, so if you actually wanted most of these changes to happen very soon, uh, you are, are then uh, necessarily restricting yourself to a set of fairly coercive, borderline draconian, if not draconian actions, which might end up being fairly harmful. So uh, a case in point is that because construction dust uh, is a significant share of Delhi's air pollution, um, one of the things that happens every winter is th- there's something called a graded response action plan. So basically a set of uh, escalating actions in uh, response to el- escalating levels of air pollution, uh, some of which are preemptive in nature. And so construction activities are basically banned in Delhi uh, for uh, for a month uh, Maybe more if, and some of it is unpredictable. So it's not like folks can plan actively around it and say from the 1st of December to the 15th of December, there won't be construction, right? So these are usually bans that are announced a few days in advance or something, which can therefore be extremely expensive uh, for, right. for the folks. Developing these projects uh, has significant income loss uh, for the laborers that work on these sites. So yeah, I think the key is the the, the, the speed at which you want. So if, if you're looking for like abrupt, uh, drastic changes in, uh, in in air quality that will likely end up being expensive. However, I'm reasonably persuaded that for the most part, and certainly like at an average or sort of net level, um, the benefits are going to far exceed the costs. Um, and, and if sort of this emergent literature on productivity and so on um, is true, right, and, and they may well be 
these costs might be sort of the, the benefits rather in terms of improved productivity and improved cognition might be on par, if not even maybe larger than the health impacts, then the case is sort of pretty solid that cleaning your air will also sort of boost economic growth. Yeah, that, that's one reason I think economists have been uh, getting more and more incensed by this issue is that they think that so many of the ways that we might reduce air pollution would, from a, from a country level or an economic point of view, pay for themselves many, many, many fold over because <laughs> having we will be sick is very bad for well-being and extremely expensive to, to deal with. And then it means people can't go to work. And then if, if this other stuff that uh, having air pollution uh, reduces worker productivity, uh, make, makes people unable to, to to work intelligently, if that stuff's true, then these, these effects could be really enormous. Mm-hmm. And so we might be willing to pay really quite surprising amounts, much more than we currently feel like we should be willing to pay uh, to in order to reduce air pollution. And what's going on is simply that the benefits are not so visible. We, we can't connect all of the benefits that we're getting from reducing air pollution to, to the, while, while the costs are extremely obvious and, and, uh, and immediately visible to, to governments and people having to buy new equipment and so on. Yep, absolutely. Okay, yeah, let's, uh, let's look at this from uh, another angle now. So we've kind of been talking about like what object level, what, what like on the ground changes to equipment and methods and transport and so on might be cost effective. Uh, but you have to look at things from a like somewhat more meta uh, level where you're saying, like whatever we're ultimately uh, trying to to have happen, you have to think about grants that would cause the government, in almost all cases, to implement these changes or cause other actors to change their their behavior. And I guess the, the the dream is that you could get a lot of leverage there, where relatively small grants might be able to shift policy across an entire state or a city or or you know conceivably even the even the entire country if you really changed what what people believed and, and what was um, what was politically feasible. Mm-hmm. So yeah, do, do you have any indications about how? practical it is to uh, to drive policy change as uh, as a philanthropist basically or even just as, as any kind of private actor in this in the, in this space in India yeah so I mean I, I I'm, I'm definitely fairly bullish about sort of the the possibility of of progress through the work that that individual researchers and think tanks and policy advocacy groups can can do yeah I mean I think there are there are certain areas where the the possibilities of leverage are are, are pretty high. Um, and and therefore, small grants can have sort of outsized impact. One constraint as a, as a grant maker here uh, is sort of um, because you know I, I represent an international foundation, and sort of the the foreign funding rules in India are are fairly restrictive. And this is especially the case when it comes to um, sort of environmental work, um, which I think has often been interpreted as being adversarial when it comes to um, sort of industrial and economic development in India, right? So, so that that does restrict the the, the types of grants that, that that one could make, right? So, for example, we talked about how the judiciary has had uh, had a huge influence. I, I am fairly ambivalent about sort of the overall like the impact that the the courts have had. I mean, I, I do think that some good things have happened as a result of it, but I also think that. They're not necessarily the places where this decision making should be done. But either way, uh, that seems like a potentially important institution to be able to influence or, or, or work with, right? But as a, as a grant maker, like that's something that I can't touch. I see. Or at least have chosen not to touch. I mean, I think uh, there are, you know, sort of following the letter of the law, there's certain things that you can and cannot do, but there's also like the spirit of the thing. And uh, we have been fairly sort of uh, careful. Careful. Media is sort of another sort of important sort of agent of change. Um, uh, arguably, one of the things that ended up leading to uh, sort of this increased uh, pace of activity over, you know, since maybe 2015, 2016 was that uh, 
media outlets took notice and um, there were just a lot more stories um, and over a period of time these stories became more and more sophisticated in sort of their understanding of the science of air pollution and you know um, what governments ought to be doing and not doing and you know, things like that so that had an important role again that's something that as an international uh, foundation we, we can't make direct grants to oh really it's it's just not permitted to do anything uh, regarding the- it's it's not permitted you you, you cannot um, you you cannot fund uh, journalists um, to sort of write stories because it it could be interpreted that this is basically like a a foreign actor trying to influence sort of the media discourse and therefore um, yeah the general narratives within a country so uh, so so some of those are uh, the types of things that could plausibly lead to changes um, and and have very high leverage but stuff that that we can't and should not do it's off the table unfortunately they're, they're off the table as as an indian citizen i i understand where this comes from some of it yeah of course seems to me as a sort of being potentially defensive but this really sort of feels uh, about my pay grade and i i i think it it's entirely reasonable to sort of be compliant with the spirit of some of these restrictions um, even if that means that you may you do have some opportunities off the table um i wish there was sort of more domestic funding in india that was sort of trying to go behind these opportunities and, and be engaged in equality that that unfortunately has not been enough of the case i mean it's 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 a fairly neglected uh, area even from a domestic funding standpoint so yeah so so we've had to therefore restrict ourselves to uh, certain types of grant making opportunities but but i do think that there is still plenty of uh, highly cost effective opportunities on the table yeah so so what sort of uh, what sort of options uh, are are you most excited about that that, that you can engage in I, I i guess one way to uh, sort of classify the types of grants that that we could make here is so so one is that there is a policy framework uh, in place there is therefore uh, an opportunity to like fund organizations that can work with government in providing technical assistance project management assistance and you know sort of governance support of various sort of hues and shades so that's something that uh, has sort of been the the largest chunk of our grant making so far um and they sort of fall along a continuum um so some of them you can think of as you know effectively consultants um sitting within government essentially being responsive to priorities that their partners within government sort of express and just sort of helping them think through these um help them implement some of these things or monitor some of things these things things like that so um, effectively we are, we are therefore paying for consultants uh, who would sort of be sitting within government helping with whatever uh, the government agencies are are interested in further along that continuum are organizations that are essentially have their own strong core areas of expertise which might be restricted to one or two sources of air pollution folks who specialize in transport or on industries or or, or whatever and are essentially pitching potential uh, intervention ideas to government or building uh, capacity within these organizations to be able to uh, intervene better so so providing technical support but from like a the the standpoint of having expertise in in these areas uh, so so there are uh, a, a few grants of uh, that kind we have a grant for example to the world bank right um which 
in in some sense is providing technical assistance but the world bank also brings the prospect of potential loans right uh, to the table uh, so there's a higher leverage that one could potentially have here that uh, not only are these folks trying to uh, recommend certain types of uh, interventions and get budgets allocated within government for that but also help the government uh, raise resources at the state level for example to do this so so yeah so that's that's one kind of technical support or or governance support grant that that, that we've also tried something to note here is that it's not obvious to me how many of these are going to work right so from yeah, sure. sort of from a hit space gra- uh, giving standpoint it's not obvious what good governance support would look like here and and which organizations are going to be particularly well placed to like actually pull off the stuff that they claim they will so i mean i'm new as a as a grant maker this is uh, my my sort of second year of of doing this and uh, so yeah so there's a, it, it's been a little bit of a learning curve as well to sort of try and figure out when we'll we'll take our chances with a few promising organizations but we can't be sure what success will look like in in any of these cases yeah headspace giving is this philosophy uh where you say well i'm i'm going to accept that maybe 9 out of 10 of the grants that i make are not really going to go anywhere but you know uh 1 in 10 will be a massive success it'll be a big hit and that will pay that will pay for the rest a little bit like a venture capitalist style of an, of investment um and i think whenever you're trying to influence government policy i think you're basically you basically have to engage in hit space giving uh, with with that, with that in mind because there's just there's no uh, simple reliable thing that allows you to slightly improve government uh, policy by an equal amount for every $1000 that you spend you can't just crank the handle low probabilities of success but then if it comes off it it can potentially have outsized impact exactly yeah okay so it sounds like so you're trying to cultivate experts and consultants and think tanks that can work either almost directly within government bureaucracies or or, or can be consulted by government bureaucracies when when they want and provide expert advice and and have kind of a policy menu on the uh, that, that that they've thought about and developed and, and they've they've tried to answer many of the questions that we've been talking about earlier like what changes would be most cost effective you know how would you change the legislation in order to make this work well we're at the stage where that groundwork you're saying kind of hasn't hasn't been done to a surprising extent uh, there's just a lot of questions that you know be great if academics or think tanks were, were looking into that then this would be very really useful for people in government or legislators uh, who wanted to take action on this uh, at, at some point is that is that that's the basic picture uh that's right i mean i i wouldn't say that this hasn't been done at all i mean a, it has been done in other sort of spheres of governance um uh, not as much on sort of air quality type things another that they have been done by other foundations but perhaps not at sort of the scale and, and maybe level of risk taking that for example maybe open philanthropy sort of more comfortable with so so i think that's that's something that we've we've tried to bring to the table here yeah i know one one reason that open philanthropy decided to go into this area is that they thought it was surprisingly neglected like relative to the large very large number of deaths that's being incurred you know i think would it be like one or two million people dying in india every year due due to due to air pollution mm-hmm. there was surprisingly few people focused on it is there a way of kind of quantifying or explaining how neglected the the topic of air pollution in south asia is yeah i mean i guess one way to think about it is like the amount of funding that has gone into it right so um one of the uh, more carefully uh, one of the more careful analyses of uh, like the funding landscape uh, basically came to the conclusion that uh, like to say in 2020 uh, there was something like 7 million a year uh, going into uh, all things air quality in india 
Is that from outside the country or including, you know, philanthropy inside the country or advocacy inside the country? Well, I think primarily from outside the country, but then uh, from within the country, there was very little. And that, that's still the case. Uh, so um, I don't think that would really change the, the estimate very much. It's extraordinarily low. It's almost hard to believe that it can be that low, that one feels that something has to be getting missed here. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree, right? And even that, I think um, in, in like maybe the last couple of years, uh, that might potentially be shrinking a little bit because a, a significant chunk, I mean, outside OpenPhil, uh, several of the foundations that were funding air quality work in, uh, in in India were primarily coming at it from a climate standpoint. And um, I mean, since Paris, uh, since the, the COP, uh, in, actually not just Paris, it, maybe even just a couple of years back, folks have now pivoted back towards things like electric vehicles and just transitions and so on. And in, in some ways, uh, the, the the funding for air quality has shrunk a little bit um, compared to those numbers. So, so, so I think that, that gives you a sense of how neglected it is compared to like the scale of the problem. One reason could be, I think there's a legitimate question of tractability here, which is, are there enough organizations that would sort of uh, be able to absorb the, the funding? Actually, even as OpenPhil entered this area, that 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 was sort of an uncertainty that sort of uh, was still there. Um, uh, in many ways, I think that uncertainty exists even now. We're not sure um, how much folks would be able to absorb funding to utilize in a cost-effective manner. What's the impediment to absorbing funding? Is it just that there there are not really obvious places that you could send the money to that that can scale and do 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 much with it? There aren't people who want to enter this area, or yeah, I mean, there, there aren't uh, enough number of organizations with a scale uh, in terms of like their, their own staffing or, or their, the, the ex- experience or expertise they have in-house to be able to absorb grants of even like a few hundred thousand dollars. So uh, so I think that that's probably still a, a bit of a challenge. And not just absorb, right, but but also like do useful things with it. Yeah. So it's it's given, I guess, compared to like the neighborhood, compared to uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh and Nepal, there are more organizations. The, the, the field is, to my estimation, uh, you know, like maybe five to 10 years ahead um, of uh, where the other countries are. But but still, there just aren't enough organizations covering enough cities, enough states in India with a, a reasonable depth or breadth of experience in, in different sectors. I guess that, so that would leave you in a kind of field building stage, potentially, where you'd say, oh, we can't just fund a, an existing infrastructure here. We can't like find all of these existing experts who could make use of millions of dollars. Instead, we have to gradually train these people and, you know, create programs at universities to create new experts who then in 5, 10, 15, 20 years time will actually be able to make use of substantially more funding. So it would kind of be a, a talent bottleneck situation where there just, yeah, there just aren't enough people qualified to take senior roles in, in, the, in the area. Uh, that's exactly right. This is especially true of, I guess, policy work um, and, you know, think tanks and uh, advocacy groups. One low-hanging fruit, uh, one set of opportunities that sort of were on the table and, and were sort of neglected from a funding standpoint was that if you were to buy into the premise that there are substantial knowledge gaps that have impeded action, right, and, and that better and more applied academic research could sort of fill those gaps substantially, you do, in fact, have um, many academic groups in the country that can actually absorb funds, um, you know, sort, sort of for their research projects, improving monitoring, improving our understanding of sources and so forth. Yeah. yeah so, so that has actually been a, a, a second significant sort of sub-strategy uh, for the program. 
I see. Okay, so so this approach would be, I guess, trying to set up lots of monitors to notice where air pollution is higher than than people think. And I guess conceivably, could you try to find some way of finding out which factories are producing far more pollution than they than they ought to be uh, without necessarily having to visit them? Yeah, uh, is this is that the kind of picture? That's the kind of thing. And are there sources that we have basically completely missed so far that actually play important roles, you know, in a, at, a, at a larger regional level or perhaps even in like specific cities? Yeah, uh, things like that. With, with monitoring, I guess that, that there are two ways of thinking about it, right? So one is like actually directly filling that gap and, and, and providing visibility into, for example, what rural air pollution looks like, but then also potentially setting the stage for government to be um, sort of deploying low-cost sensors on their own at like a larger scale, right? But because, at you know, that's not something that they have done so far, being able to like pilot the use of, you know, these monitoring technologies that are sort of new and offer new advantages and so forth um, at a scale that is sufficient to then inform the use uh, of these approaches by government in the future. Can you set up, can you uh, basically fund the creation of a think tank slash advocacy group that would push for like the air quality boards to be able to just impose fines on anyone who violates the the legislative, you know, pollution thresholds? That's something that jumped out to me as kind of a, a very natural thing that you, that, that you might do. Um, so, I mean, I guess some of the governance support grants, you know, would, would effectively be, um, you know, potential opportunities to do things like that, right? So yeah. at the moment, most of our grants are, sort of somewhat broad and sort of source agnostic in scope. In a sense, they sort of um, follow uh, from like the the priorities that the the government partners they're working with have sort of expressed to them. And, and therefore, in some instances, they're in fact working on, on industries. But uh, this is exactly the kind of opportunity I think that um, I think we have not explored enough of where uh, you might end up having a lot of leverage that... Yeah, yeah. Could you describe in a, in a little bit more detail, like what are some of the grants that that you've made uh, since since you started, or some of the grants that you're looking at and considering making now? Sure. So the the, the very first grant that I made uh, was, in fact, uh, you know, to to a university professor, an academic group, um, to basically set up a very large low cost sensor network um, across rural Uttar Pradesh and Bihar. Right. I mean, two of the most populous uh, states in India. Uh, Uttar Pradesh is the largest state. And uh, like I said, rural air pollution was completely neglected. So uh, what this project entails is basically setting up something like 1400 monitors across these two states uh, by uh, sort of a sort of a fairly prominent academic who's um, seen as sort of a credible, trusted expert uh, by by these governments. And, you know, in general has, has done uh, excellent work on, on sort of the use of low-cost sensors and so forth. Um, so, yeah, get him to, to basically spearhead this effort at, like, covering uh, these two states. In some ways, helping improve the measurement of rural air pollution, but also, like, almost testing the use of sensors for a use case like this, right? Because uh, the low-cost sensors have... Uh, many strengths and, and have many advantages that they can offer. But if they're not sort of calibrated well and maintained well and so forth, they'll basically spit out not very reliable data, right? So not just sort of uh, deploying sensors, but like setting up like the processes where you can be confident about the numbers that these are reporting, 
uh, involves a bunch of uncertainties at the moment. So that's what, in many ways, we have taken a bet on uh, this, this uh, academic to, to try and solve. And, and if he's able to sort of demonstrate uh, to these state governments that, look, you can actually do this well, and it costs a tiny fraction of what like the, the more traditional monitors do. And therefore, there is a way in which you could use your own resources better to have hybrid monitoring networks, I think that could be a great win. If he's able to persuade them that rural air pollution is a large and real problem and that you should be making much more progress, that would be a huge win. I see. Okay, so so the situation is that up until now, governments have mostly relied on quite like expensive centralized monitors that are, I guess, they're, they're more accurate, but they're much more expensive. And so here, you want to trial and demonstrate that something that's much lower cost that you could scale up to th- to many thousands, tens of thousands, even across the country. Mm-hmm. That uh, although like, that you can overcome the the accuracy issues, uh, and uh, and that could potentially cause people to realize, oh wow, we should be monitoring this, and we can monitor it at acceptable cost at at a, at a much at a much larger scale. And then that could make, I mean, that could have a whole lot of effects, but it could make the whole issue much more salient and people much more able to complain that air pollution in their area is is unacceptable. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Are there any other any other grants that you could describe? So, I mean, I, I talked. I mean, I, I briefly outlined the the various governance support type grants. Um, so, I can give a couple of examples to like give some concreteness to it. The the World Bank grant, uh, for example, um, what they'll they'll basically be doing is a bunch of technical assistance. So, so they'll, they work with different state governments, uh, to try and persuade them on what, on how they could, uh, approach planning and, and sort of, uh, state level prioritization of different actions. One of the things that the World Bank, I think, has been doing pretty effectively, uh, in India is sort of making the case for moving beyond sort of city specific or city centric governance to like working at the airshed level. Now, and airshed is sort of, I guess, an intuitive enough concept to, to sort of acknowledge saying, okay, well, look, air pollution does not really recognize administrative boundaries that these pollutants can actually travel tens, hundreds, sometimes thousands of kilometers. And and, and therefore, you want to be operating at like the, the scale at which these pollutants seem to move and, and, and get created and so forth, right? But in practical terms, uh, what this means is that you would need to be able to work with neighboring states and have like almost like a common plan of action in many ways hold your neighboring states to account if you were to actually truly recognize this as like a south asia wide thing it means that there is uh, cooperation between pakistan and india and bangladesh and nepal in trying to solve air pollution i i, I guess to put it mildly pakistan and india don't really see eye to eye a whole lot yeah <laughs> so so yeah i, I guess <laughs> figuring out how to operationalize this concept and, and persuading, I guess, starting at the state level, right? Just sort of, that itself is actually a fairly large um, transition, right? In, in terms of how governance is being done for air pollution. Being able to sort of think of this as not an urban problem anymore, but as something which, you know, uh, where you have a common plan for like rural sources and industrial sources and and, and like urban sources. Um, and... So yeah, so that's something that they're doing. Uh, they're also trying to, I think, bring in in ways that are perhaps unique to a multilateral agency like the like the bank, uh, trying to institutionalize cost effectiveness analysis uh, for this prioritization, which I'm pretty excited about. I think uh, there hasn't been enough systematic sort of conversation, systematic attempts even at like cost benefit analysis um, in in uh, in prioritizing different actions. Um, so that's something that we are sort of taking a bet on the World Bank for. Um, they've been doing good work and 
we also thought of this as a nice learning opportunity uh, for us in terms of figuring out, you know, ways of intervening um, and, and trying to influence uh, decision making um, and, and helping sort of move towards the next generation of air quality governance. Yeah, I, sh- I should have asked this earlier, but it's, so uh, the, the the air quality uh, boards, or the, sorry, the air, the, air, the air control boards, uh, they're at the city level primarily. Is that right? So this tends to be uh, governed at a fairly local level rather than at the state or let alone national level. So, um, given the variety of sources that that we have, uh, there are actually multiple agencies at the the, the federal or central, uh, as we put it in India, uh, level, the state levels, and at the the levels of sort of local government. So it, it really depends on the source. The state pollution control boards are in many ways the principal regulators, environmental regulators uh, in the country. Uh, there is a central pollution control board, uh, which basically uh, acts as, on the one hand, an expert institution that sort of uh, sets certain standards that the state pollution control boards then sort of follow. But um, they also have some sort of uh, direct regulatory responsibilities. But for the most part, it's the states, right? However, they are primarily focused on industrial sources of pollution. When it comes to other sources, uh, for example, with transport, uh, where you really have like a much wider variety of possible actions, um, there is a state transport department. There is uh, the municipal corporation. There's a traffic police, uh, which in many ways acts as sort of the principal on-road regulator for like visibly polluting vehicles and so on. So yeah, you you, you basically need coordinated action across all these different agencies uh, to be able to do anything. Anything on waste is with the local government. Anything on power plants, to some extent it's with at the state level, but primarily... Um, it's at the federal level that you have. So, uh, so yeah. So, this the depending on the source, the the agency and sort of the scale of uh, governance is, is is quite different. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, let's uh, maybe do a maybe do a third uh, grant or a third approach that uh, you've been interested to, to to look into. All right. So, so this is I think um, one where uh, there has been sort of. The, the most uh, skepticism internally within the organization, um, while I am extremely excited about it. So, um, so, <laughs> yes. yeah, so it's, it's super, it's super cruxy in, in, in yeah. that sense. So, um, uh, so, so I, I made a grant to this sort of consortium of primarily sort of academic partners to develop something called a, a reduced complexity model, right? So, uh, so, so let me try and uh, explain what this is and why I'm sort of excited about it. One of the challenges with sort of policy analysis on uh, figuring out what kinds of interventions will work well and so on is that translating a particular action to sort of the delta in emissions from that particular source is relatively straightforward, right? But going further and saying that this action, which will have this delta of emissions from this source, will result in this improvement in concentrations, right, which is what we care about most, um, is significantly harder to do. Because depending on the source, that the pollutants may disperse to like various scales, they may react with various other substances in the atmosphere. Um, So, Capturing this dynamic requires a very specific form of expertise that allows you to model dispersion on the one hand, but also atmospheric chemistry. So it requires a specific kind of expertise. Uh, It requires enormous computing power and time. So if you're basically, consider, uh, for example, coal power plants, right? So you're, you're, you're looking at potential alternative uh, policy interventions that you could take. So there is a particular kind of emissions control technology 
that is going to get mandated. Alternatively, you're saying that you're going to uh, tighten the standards by X percent uh, and everybody has to comply with it in whatever way they want. Alternatively, you're saying these power plants have to be shut down, right? Now, trying to figure out what impact each of these alternative scenarios would have on like air quality levels actually becomes pretty sort of complicated um, from like a scientific standpoint, right? And that has meant that the folks who do policy analysis are folks who also have the ability to like make, you know, sort of do the scenario modeling and, and so forth. Now, I'd submit that the vast number of people who have the atmospheric chemistry expertise don't really have any kind of expertise on like understanding policy. I see, right, right. right. Um, and then the folks who can do like the policy stuff and like understand the nuances of you know how these things cost and have no ability to like do the atmospheric chemistry stuff, which which creates um, a, a gap in like the policy analysis that gets produced, which creates this particular gap that we have in like not having any cost benefit analysis or, or not nearly enough uh, cost benefit analysis of different policy actions. What the reduced complexity models will do, <laughs> coming yeah. back to the grant, yeah, yeah, yeah. is basically um, simplifying that sort of second step of the process, right? So essentially, they make some approximations on like the atmospheric chemistry side, but basically provide this very nifty, computationally light tool that you can learn. So folks who don't have the atmospheric chemistry training and so on can just use the tool, generate the scenarios they want, be able to figure out what impact it will have uh at like a fraction of the cost, a tiny, tiny fraction of the time uh, involved. And um, that potentially helps create the foundation for like new quantitative policy analysis on alternative interventions, right? Which makes me like super excited about the, the grant. Yeah. But I can talk about the case against it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so in a nutshell, this would allow someone who's, say, an expert on transportation or on, uh, you know, house fuel burning, who's not a climate scientist, uh, uh, to uh, actually, at a, at a reasonably accurate level, a tolerably accurate level, model what implications this would have across the across the air shed if policy and emissions, or like pollution emissions, were changed in this way or that. And, and I guess, and this would allow them to say a whole lot more and potentially to to communicate to politicians and the public like what benefits they might expect to see if they changed uh, change policy in some direction. Seems seems pretty good. What's what's the case against it? So the case against it is that. I mean, this is field building from like an even earlier stage than with like some of the other work, right? On the governance support type stuff. In some sense, um, we are creating or, or trying to create the supply of policy analysis, assuming that there is either a latent demand or that a demand will get created once this stuff is out there and is seen as credible and interesting or insightful, which is a, a non-trivial assumption. Yeah, yeah. I think you would you could justifiably say, look, we are starting at a fairly low base. There are probably a bunch of actions that that you could do without any of this very particular kind of policy analysis. And given the way given the way politics works and given the way sort of policies get decided and implemented and so forth, there is enough sort of messiness in there that mm. this kind of thing might not actually add a tremendous amount of value. And you might end up doing the same stuff. So I think that's a perfectly legitimate point. Yeah. What, what, why do you support it anyway? Why I support it is that if you look at air quality governance in other countries, right? So the way the, the US EPA works, the way uh, 
something called the the CLRTAP, which is the Convention of Long Range Transboundary Air Pollution, which was basically this surprisingly successful uh, international convention, um, uh, which involved, you know, when it was signed, the the Soviet Union, the US, Canada, and most of the European countries in trying to like solve uh, acid rain uh, initially, and then actually uh, go ahead and like try and tackle other types of air pollution. The way these things functioned, um, you know, had analysis of this kind almost at its core. So, so there were there was uh, sort of diplomatic um, engagement and compromises and reconciliation, all, all of that happening uh, with the CLR tap. But in many ways, the the policy analysis and scientific assessments sort of provided like the the facts, if you will, of you know, like that, that sort of informed the contours of those negotiations, mm. right? Uh, likewise, with the US EPA, I'm sure there are a ton of political negotiations, but the, the cost-benefit analysis is like almost by default. When when states draw up their implementation plans, they uh, like running some of these models uh, that look at like alternative policy scenarios and so on, That's that happens as process, right? So there is good reason to believe that this adds value, helps sort of becomes the foundation of evidence-based sort of governance and policy making of a particular kind uh, that has basically been standard and has worked in, in other parts of the world. And therefore, there is going to be some point, probably very soon, if you have not already reached there, where like the, the common sense-based sort of prioritization of different actions and so on will sort of hit its limit um, and where you actually ought to be taking uh, the support of more careful, um, thoughtful analysis, right? Yeah. Which would be impossible right now and which potentially like the, the reduced complexity models can help solve. Uh, partly it's also addressing the, the constraint in terms of talent in India for like running these more complicated atmospheric chemistry models like across the country. You need to make it easier. Yeah. I mean, a few groups can do it, but that's that's not enough um, given the scale of the problem. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so it's been... There's a historical uh, example where it seems like something like this was extremely instrumental in getting up one of the most successful uh, international environmental treaties uh, ever. So, th- so that makes you think that maybe it could be useful in this case as well, uh, which makes, makes a lot of sense. I guess speaking of historical analogues, um, are there examples of other cities or countries that have managed to greatly reduce their air pollution and you know, improve health significantly, starting from something like the situation that, that, that India is in, is in now? Is, are there other case studies that, that, that you can learn from? Um, there are. Um, in fact, one of the reasons that I, I remain optimistic that this is a solvable problem is simply that it has been solved elsewhere. And, and in many ways, starting from a lower base of knowledge. So starting from like the, the, the great smog in London in 1952, where over the course of like a few days, um, the updated estimate suggests that something like 12,000 people died as a direct consequence of that smog, right? to legislation a few years later and and then to sort of control measures in terms of um, cleaner coal for for residential use, coal power plants having emission controls or or being shut down entirely. Um, So that has meant that London has made sort of tremendous progress, right? Across the US, just actually uh, even using a sort of more recent uh, timeline, the US EPA claims that from 2000 to 2022, Across the United States, uh, there has been something like a 41% reduction in PM 2.5 uh, due to the, the, the various types of actions that taken. Um, in China, which I guess is sort of 
in some ways is most comparable in terms of just the the population and the scale of the the pollution although i think even at its peak beijing for example was never as polluted as delhi is right i mean sure there might be like uh, episodic highs but in terms of like on average on average um, the, the pollution was always lower than delhi is but across china uh, there seems to have been like a, a 30% reduction from uh, about 2010 to 2019 2020 mm. primarily because of better industrial emissions control transitions uh, of the fuel used um, in in many of these industries from coal to gas something that for example is happening in uh, parts of india right now basically you know almost internalizing sort of the some of the state capacity constraints and say okay look there are probably more economically efficient ways of like getting these industries to emit less but it's unlikely that the state capacity given the state capacity constraints that the pollution control boards can actually sort of pull that off so there could be like a a more um, command and control type mandate on like fuel conversion from solid fuels to a much cleaner uh, gas So so that that's one thing that China did uh, again um improving the quality of uh, residential um, fuels for heating from from coal to gas I think that's something that that really worked well which I think has a quite direct inter- uh, sort of analog uh, in India as well so so there there are things to learn from other countries arguably the the state capacity thing is one big constraint the the variety of sources is sort of makes it more challenging uh, in India but I I think there is plenty to learn from elsewhere Yeah. Uh so, so I guess the, the difference with China is maybe in in 2010 China was several times like richer in terms of GDP per capita than than True. India is now. So maybe yeah. there were there were options that were financially viable uh, for them that that India might struggle to to pay for now. I guess yeah what what does state what does state capacity mean exactly? I I mean there's there's lots of governance issues in in China, but I I suppose do we just think that the bureaucracy in China is just more able to do things. It's more able to deliver services, it's more able to to tell businesses what to do. Uh get could we be more concrete about what is the difference between the government in India and the government in China? Um I I can't claim to be uh, an expert on like governance in China so I think that that limits so some of these are sort of maybe high level superficial takes. Yeah. Partly I think China has been able to resolve some of like the political economy based challenges for like industries right. So I think there are ways in which uh, the pollution if the pollution control boards and were, were to get like the political backing uh, they need uh, to tell industries look you got to clean up your act and, and be able to like comply with like the standards you got or potentially even these more stringent standards it need not necessarily be economically prohibitively expensive for the industries to do so but because they don't have that political backing because even from within government uh, the pollution control boards are seen as sort of a hindrance to industrial development in many ways they have been trying to signal success by how much they can cut red tape right and sort of make it easier for industries to function than how much they're able to clean up the air or water so right 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 and so uh, yeah I, th- i think changing those incentives changing um, the sort of the success metrics could could play a huge role and i think china was able to once the there was enough of a public demand that seemed to have built up for um, sort of cleaner air they were able to sort of take some of these tougher actions which has been harder to do uh, in, in in india on the state capacity thing i can be uh, in terms of like the the routine service delivery my prior would be that some of these issues the the bureaucracy is able to like implement stuff better like you know implement a waste management a better waste management infrastructure sort of better or something like that 
I have no basis to believe that though. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, uh, so, so I, I won't believe it. Don't, don't to, yeah, yeah, makes sense. Okay, uh, we, we've, we've been recording for, for for quite a while, and I should I should let you go uh, get 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 to your kid there, and then and eventually get to sleep as well because it's it's getting somewhat late over over there in India. Uh, maybe it's kind of a, a final sort sort of questions. If if there's if there's someone, we have a non-trivial number of listeners in in India actually. Um, what what sorts of things could someone potentially do if they were a smart undergraduate uh, in in India? What uh, like what kinds of things could they study, or what career might they pursue if they wanted to help with this, with the with the air pollution issue? Yeah, I mean, I think one way of trying to uh, solve for like the absence of successful scalable uh, interventions and so on is there just being a lot more pilots out there um, and, and a lot more organizations that are able to, to, to focus on a particular source of pollution and like like test out new technology, test out new methods of, I don't know, monitoring and enforcement or something. I, I think there is like a significant demand out there, even from within government, right? So from my conversations with bureaucrats, they're like, look, everybody who wants to work with us wants to like set up monitors, wants to self, sort of help define the problem better. We think that's helpful, no doubt. But in many ways, we get it, right? We know that there is a significant air pollution problem. We know that give or take, this is what the most important sources are and this is how much they... Um, so if you had to go beyond like the problem defining stuff and like actually figure out what you can do about it and um, test out new methods, test out new tech and like the governance support grants at the moment, right? I mean, are only trying to sort of try and make the existing processes more efficient or they exist. They're not necessarily bringing new ideas to the table. Having folks, um, more folks who could, you know, sort of help in like the actual problem solving as opposed to the problem defining, I think there's a, there's a big gap. And and um, I think that would be, I, I think it'd be great if, if there's sort of uh, a larger number of young folks uh, trying out new things, not assuming constraints that may not exist actually in practice. Yeah, just trying out stuff, like doing things. Um, I think that that'd be great. There's, there's clearly an appetite for it. And is is Openfield potentially going to be hiring for for more people to work on the South Asia Equality Program? It seems like it's it's such a huge space uh, that you need you need quite a large team in order to be able to to fully understand all all of the all of the different options. Uh, we might in the future. So I think everything turns on sort of the experience of the first couple of years of grant making um, and, and what we learn from it. So there is, I think, a, a real possibility that we actually update uh, negatively in terms of like the tractability, right? Um, that sure, it's an important problem. Sure, it's neglected. But actually being able to make progress requires organizations that don't exist or ideas that just haven't yet, uh, that, that aren't already out there and so, so that might be like a negative update. I, I don't know if that's the case, but, but yes, things do turn on that. If our grant making were to increase in the other countries, in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, in Nepal, there could potentially be, uh, depending on sort of scale of it, there might be uh, the need for uh, folks who understand uh, those countries better, who understand what works. And yeah, because I, I for all intents and purposes, I'm, I'm quite the generalist uh, when it comes to, I, I have no idea how uh, policy making in Pakistan functions. And yeah. so, um, so yeah, so I think if that becomes a larger part of the, the, the portfolio um, and there are more opportunities out there, again, I think tractability has been the big constraint in the other mm. countries. There just don't seem to be enough organizations that work on uh, on, on air pollution. Yeah, it's a, bit of, it's a bit of a difficult chicken and egg problem where uh, there hasn't been funding available, so people haven't got into it, but that means that there's no, there's currently not really people who you could fund. Uh, makes it, That's right. Maybe it makes it hard to scale things up uh, super quickly in any area. It's, I mean, it's, it's also been a kind of classic issue in AI and artificial 
intelligence policy, AI, uh, technical stuff as well. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, I remember I, I spoke with Alexander Berger uh, three years ago, I think, when they were considering going into South Asia air quality and everyone was super excited about uh, this possible new new program area. But but they weren't sure whether they would find someone who was able to actually take to, take take the bull by the horns and take forward the, the program. So I'm super glad that they that they did manage to find you. And you've got you've got so much to say and, and, and so much knowledge about this. Uh, there was always a risk that this program wouldn't even start because uh, the, the, the field just wouldn't have been built yet. So yeah, thank, thanks for all the all the work that you're doing. Uh, it sounds uh, it's, it sounds super exciting as as, as well as being uh, kind, kind of challenging. Yeah, thanks so much, Rob. Um, I mean, uh, I, I guess the jury is still out there on sort of um, how I'll actually perform as a grant maker. Uh, it's still sort of early days, and it's been a fantastic learning experience. I mean, and and, and OpenFill, I think, has been a a really good organization to be a grant maker in and sort of learn the ropes and stuff. Um, so yeah, so it's it's been wonderful, and uh, I enjoyed our chat today, and I hope it was coherent enough and focused enough. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> more, more, more than coherent enough. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll all be rooting for you. Uh, maybe we can check in in a couple of years' time and see how some of these grants have gone and uh, which direction the, the research has ended up moving. Yeah, I'd love that. My guest today has been Santosh Harish. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Santosh. Thanks, Rob. If you enjoyed that conversation, you'll be glad to know that I have an interview with the founder of the Lead Exposure Elimination Project coming up sometime soon, uh, which covers many more issues related to dangerous pollution in developing uh, and sometimes developed countries. And if you liked that episode, you could show your appreciation by telling a friend about this show or forwarding it to someone out there who might really enjoy listening to it or someone who might enjoy listening to some other previous episode of the show that you have particularly enjoyed. You really are able to get the show into the hands of people who would value it and might be able to usefully act on what they learn in a way that is really hard for us to do because, you know, uh, we only personally know so many people. All right. The 80,000 Hours Podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. The audio engineering team is led by Ben Cordell with mastering and technical editing by Marla Maguire and Simon Monsour. Additional content editing by Louisa Rodriguez and Katie Moore, who also puts together full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more, available on our site, as always, 80,000hours.org. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.